right, and welcome to the Raw is Nitro podcast, the show that rips up the buy rates and TV ratings and declares our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, joined today by a very special guest for the first time, the host of the Raw Attitude podcast, the show that was the inspiration for this one, Henry Hugepex, the suplex throwing human duplex. I hope I got that correct, Henry. How's things? You did. You got it 100% correct. And yeah, I, I definitely owe you because you've been on my show twice and uh, and completely tore it up talking about uh, Survivor Series 98 and a random episode of Raw over the summer of 98, so definitely, I, I absolutely owed you one here. Oh yeah, very, very excited to have you on. I've been sort of, had this one earmarked to have you on for a while, um, for reasons we'll get into later, but I think this night can certainly be pinpointed as one of the big Kickstarters for the Attitude Era, and that's what you specialize in, so I was very happy to have you come and join me for this episode. Absolutely, and, and for me personally, this is one of the nights where, you know, me growing up, always 100% staunch WWF, you know, WWE, whatever you want to call it. I was a WWF loyalist until roughly around this time, because obviously what was happening on Nitro, which kickstarts on this night we're going to talk about, even for, you know, the most diehard WWF fan, it was tough to resist doing a little bit of channel surfing when that was going on on the other channel. So this is actually a pivotal moment for me uh, as a wrestling fan myself. Well, you wouldn't be wrong there because having a quick look at the ratings breakdown before we go in. So for uh, just to skip back a sec, we are, of course, referring to the May, sorry, April, May, I'm correct, May 27th episode of Nitro and Raw. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ratings here on this night, Raw scored a 2.3, Nitro scored a 2.8, which up until now in the Monday Night Wars, this has been jumping backwards and forwards fairly regularly. It appears to be quite random, the results, obviously delays to times and um being preempted and things like that. Uh, These are just bouncing backwards and forwards. But from this night onwards, Raw actually win the ratings again in two weeks' time. And then the following week is the beginning of that 83 weeks of dominance for WCW. So you would definitely not be alone in jumping ship around this time. Yep. And that week that starts the 83 weeks of dominance, I believe, is when... uh a, a second person shows up on Nitro, and then it, which actually, if you go back and look at it, it, makes a ton of sense because once that second guy shows up, it's just off to the races. So, yeah, that's uh, that marks the beginning of the end for uh, for Raw being competitive in the ratings for about uh, a year and a half, two years. Yeah, absolutely. So this was um, really the catalyst that I felt wrestling needed to hit its boom period here. So as much as I was definitely WWF loyalist, as as you said. Um, this definitely sparked wrestling in general and made it cool and popular on levels that had never felt before, in my opinion, because not only was it, pro- you know, um, ratings and money-wise was comparable to the golden era with Hulk Hogan, but I feel as though this was cool in high schools and with young adults and pretty much any ma- any male at this time knew about or loved wrestling for, for a good couple of years here, not too long after this. Absolutely. So the, sh- the shows themselves, uh, Nitro comes to us from the Macon Coliseum in Macon, Georgia, and Raw comes to us from the Cumberland County Memorial Auditorium in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, if I was on your show, I'd probably be scratching my head to find notable shows from that venue, yeah. but we don't have to worry about that here. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, seriously. I, I, all I could um, think of was, you know, the WWF is in flare country, that's all that I could think of. Yeah, I think um, the only thought that went through my mind was, uh, isn't Vince from one of the Carolinas originally? <laughs> That's yes! That's about the only thing I could think of. Yep, he's from North Carolina. That's right. There you go. And um, Raw is in a very interesting position here because normally, like, I get to these shows once a month where I've got to talk about whether it was before or after the pay-per-view. Raw is both before yeah. and after the pay-per-view <laughs> for this night. 
Um, because as I'll talk about on my next episode with Carl, it was the tragic in your house, beware of dog where the, the storms hit and the power went out. So they ran that on the Sunday and again on the Tuesday. So raw features smack bang in the middle of the same pay-per-view airing twice with, um, one with lights and one without lights. Yes. Are, are you by any chance a fan of the, uh, the new blood rising podcast? Sure am. Yeah. There you go. So the reason I brought that up is because this uh, Beware of Dog, I believe, is still to this day the only pay-per-view that ever takes place in South Carolina where the New Blood pod is based out of. So the one and only time they go to South Carolina and disaster strikes and they haven't been back since. I'm guessing uh, Vince is a man of superstition. <laughs> yeah. That's enough of an omen. <laughs> Nitro, however, is about eight or nine days removed from Slamboree, which, I, again, I'll talk about on the next episode, but um, was certainly an interesting pay-per-view and not comparable to all the ones to come from here on out. And he is a few weeks away from the Great American Bash, or maybe a little bit longer than that, but the next the next stop is going to be the Great American Bash, where big things happen with some of the characters that set to debut. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's an understatement right there. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. The landscape is about to change again very soon. Absolutely. Now, with all that being said, um, I know we watched them in the wrong order, but we agreed upon watch, uh, going through Raw here first because Nitro is obviously the landmark episode. So we've set the table. Should we go over and have a look at Monday Night Raw and see if they've got anything to put up a fight at this time in 96? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay, so Raw opens up with Goldust in the ring, and they tell us on commentary that we're going to see some King of the Ring qualifiers tonight. I always liked this time of year, but back when the King of the Ring was a King of the Ring was around, and seeing the qualifiers, it made the TV matches mean so much more. Were you a fan of King of the Ring, Henry? I was, yeah. I always enjoyed, uh, like you said, the same sort of thing where you would start off with uh, like sixteen guys, and gradually, you know, each week on Raw, you kind of whittle it down to, uh, you know eight or or four guys, however many they actually wanted to put on the actual King of the Ring pay-per-view itself. So yeah, I was definitely a big fan of the the King of the Ring. Um, and this was certainly an interesting an interesting match. I, I never would have thought that uh, you know we're getting Goldust versus the Ultimate Warrior. That actually is, you know, pretty pretty interesting uh a pretty interesting match, I guess you could say, to start off with. Right now obviously Warrior is just came in, what, about a month, two months ago at WrestleMania. He's still got some, you know, momentum. And Goldust right now is still getting a huge push. So when I saw this match, I was like, wow, that's uh, that's definitely an interesting starter for the King of the Ring. And, you know, when where it actually goes from there is uh, a little underwhelming, but uh, I was definitely psyched to see it. I probably should have forewarned you. These guys had a match on the last pay-per-view episode I did, and my first note for this one here just says, please do not be as terrible as in your house. Oh, yes. You know what? You know what's funny is I actually watched that pay-per-view. That was uh, Good Friends, Better Enemies. I watched that, yeah, yeah a, couple, a couple months ago. I just randomly watched that show, and that was the one where, yeah, Warrior spends a good majority of the time, like, sitting in Goldust's director's chair and smoking a cigar, and Wearing uh, his wig and his robe. Yeah, yeah. terrible. And, and it was also, I think, the only night where Goldust enlisted the former Mantar as his bodyguard. So Yeah, it didn't work out so well, did it? <laughs> no, it was just like, oh, Mantar's here for one night, and now he's gone. Okay, great, whatever. 
Did you catch the uh, the first uh, in the very first portion of the match? Vincent commentary saying this has been the first King of the Ring qualifier on the WWF network. I did. I actually noted that too. I was I was thinking like, was there a, you know if they tried to do a WWF network on like you know twenty eight k dial up or something back in ninety six? You know, <laughs> I don't think that would have worked out very well. No, definitely not. Um, and Jerry, speaking of interesting commentary early on, Jerry Lawler talks about whether or not we're going to get a king or a queen of the ring in something that certainly wouldn't fly in 2019. Oh, yeah, right, because of Goldust. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I also point out the and fact I'm- that uh, Warrior had his Warrior University tights on as well. I forgot that was a thing. That was exactly what I was about to say. That is brilliant. <laughs> nice. Um, and what's... We could talk about all this stuff because the early portion of the match is pretty much a typical house show stalling with nothing going on, a few punches and a taunt, and that's about it, isn't it? Uh, yeah, literally that is pretty much it. And the one thing I, I noticed was, or the one thing I had to make note of was initially, and when you talk about the taunting, at one point Goldust does the old you know heel move where he's like, that's it, I'm out of here, and he walks up the ramp, and Ahmed Johnson comes out from backstage and basically like takes Goldust and throws him back into the ring. So I was like, okay, that's that's kind of like a good way of making the match continue. But then as the match continues, Goldust basically does the same thing and Ahmed Johnson then does not show up a second time. So I was like, shouldn't he shouldn't he be coming back or is Ahmed just like I only got one of these in me and that's it, you know? He's got a very short attention span. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The, the the few moves we do get in the match include some atomic drops and um, a, a flapjack from the Ultimate Warrior, which I was surprised about. And then, of course, Goldust does take several powders out of the ring, which leads to the spot you just mentioned with um, Ahmed Johnson carrying him back in. Um, Vince on commentary is apologizing profusely for the storms the night before and going into um, damage control mode, trying to talk to everyone about getting the encore on Tuesday night and presenting the matches that were promised. So I, I actually had a, a little bit of, I felt a little bit sorry for Vince here. It can't be yeah. easy to try and fix something like this on the fly. Oh yeah. The the thing I was thinking of too was the fact that one of those, I mean, I guess you could literally call them dark matches because people were wrestling in the dark during yeah. during the pay-per-view they didn't they didn't stop the show they had the guys wrestling in the dark which seems like it would be dangerous but the, what i noticed was like one of the matches was undertaker versus goldust that they were doing in the dark and i was like why doesn't undertaker just lift his arms and turn the lights back on you know i mean <laughs> come on that's his power we know that <laughs> he really let the team down on this one <laughs> yeah he's like he only does it when it's when it's on his time basically you know that's what it yeah. is uh, in the ring, we get a backdrop from the Warrior for a two and a belly-to-belly suplex, which I think would be the first time I've ever seen the Ultimate Warrior throw one of those, and that got him a two count as well. Yeah, I made that exact same note. Exact, um, exact same note, I should say. I was like, wow, freaking belly-to-belly suplex by the Warrior. I've never seen that. Yeah, maybe after the last match, one of the agents pulled them aside and said, look, guys, you're going to have to learn a couple of moves for the next match because we <laughs> actually need some wrestling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> From there, we get a low blow from Goldust and a chin lock. And I think, I might be wrong. Tell me your opinion on this, but I think they might be piping in some warrior chants on the broadcast here. That, you know, I would not put that past them at all. I just, there was a there was a, a big warrior chant for him to get out of the chin lock. And on my screen, nobody was moving out of their chair or <laughs> appeared to be making any noise. So, uh, yeah, ha- have a look and see what you think. But I think it was a little, a little underhanded. Yeah. I Are actually... A power slam. Sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say one other note I made, like one thing that Vince said was just like he had poor phrasing because he said about the about Beware of Dog the night before, he said, everyone there stayed right in their seats and had a wonderful time until the lights came back on. So like the way, (laughs) 
the way he worded it made it seem like the fans were enjoying themselves until the lights came back on, and then it was like, oh, same <laughs> shitty wrestling we're used to. So, yeah, it was just like bad, bad phrasing there, Vince. Yeah, oh, is this all we waited for? <laughs> what a waste of time. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we get a, a power slam and some rope shakes from the Warrior. Um, his big fire up, three clotheslines, the flying shoulder tackle, but Goldust again powders to the outside. And as you said, Ahmed doesn't come out the second time, and the Warrior gives chase, leading to a double count out in a very, very stupid um, finish to a King of the Ring qualifier. Just Warrior could have just stood in the ring and advanced through to the next round, but yeah. that's not his way, and both guys are out. Yeah, exactly. It was so weird because Goldust is outside the ring, and literally the referee is starting his count. So all Goldust would have, to, or excuse me, all Warrior would have to do is just stand there in the ring, count out victory, the end. You advance in the tournament, but Warrior's like, nah, I'm going to go run after Goldust and get us both counted out for no reason whatsoever. So yeah, that was really a really strange booking. Kind of made Warrior look like a bit of an idiot. Especially because he didn't actually catch him. And then Jerry Lawler has time to sneak up on the Warrior. So if the Warrior, in theory, is chasing Goldust and wants to catch him, surely someone sneaking wouldn't get anywhere near. But Warrior does indeed catch Lawler sneaking up on him with the chair and then just backs him down before the Warrior heads out. So that's the end of the segment. Yeah. This actually, this went for about, the match itself went for almost 15 minutes, which seems kind of inconceivable for an Ultimate Warrior match around this time. But I was like, wow, 15 friggin' minutes for Warrior and Goldust. All right, that's, uh, you know, maybe about uh, 10 minutes longer than it should have gone, considering, like, as, as you said, that Goldust was just doing so much stalling. But, uh, yeah, I was, I was very surprised by how long this went. Basically a quarter of the entire broadcast. Yeah, and I think this is where the um, opposite perspectives come in uh, to play because I was pleasantly surprised, whereas I imagine you were bored out your brain because this was infinitely better than in your house, but it was still terrible. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I having also seen that Warrior Goldust match from from uh, Good Friends Better Enemies, I definitely thought this was better. Still not great, but uh, when, when you see these two guys going 15 minutes, I, I mean, when they pack about, you know, probably about five minutes worth of actual content into that 15-minute match. Um, but, you know... Again, I, I will agree with you that it was better than the previous match because that last... I mean, you want to talk about stalling, go watch that match from that pay-per-view because that was pretty much nothing but stalling. My um, my hopes are not raised too high when Jerry Lawl is now being inserted into the feud, the king of stalling in the WWF. Yes. <laughs> was that pun intended there, the king of stalling? <laughs> yeah, it actually wasn't. It just worked out well. <laughs> yes, but it does give us... I know that this uh, Warrior-Lawler feud does give us a great moment coming up in uh, in future weeks where Warrior, for some reason, the first time in his career, he wears a baseball cap, which kind of telegraphs uh, what's about to happen next. So so be on the lookout for that, because that's kind of fun. If you see the Warrior coming down to the ring wearing a baseball cap, then uh, you know some fun stuff's about to happen. It's definitely a bright spot on the horizon, so stay tuned, everybody. Oh, yeah. We um, then go to see the free-for-all from the pay-per-view the night before and see um, Sonny and Billy Gunn kiss, and the Guns win back the tag team titles from the Smoking Guns. So that sort of flipping around with the tag belt and Sonny being involved with all the tag teams holding the gold is certainly in full effect at the moment. We see that Mark Miro beat Triple H. We see big footage of the storms and yes they did look pretty brutal mm-hmm. and then Vince again offers an encore and to try and I guess add some intrigue to what is essentially a repeat of the pay-per-view Ted DiBiase is on screen with Steve Austin and he says that if Savio Vega wins the return strap match at tomorrow night's pay-per-view he will leave the WWF so certainly um, the stakes have been raised a little bit to try and compensate for the the muck around with the pay-per-view all right standing by 
very unhappy, Ted DiBiase. Mr. DiBiase, you're not happy at all over the latest turn of events, are you? No, I'm not happy at all, McMahon. To say that uh, Savio Vega's victory last night was a fluke is an understatement. Yeah. At least, I mean, the lights were out. Who knows how many times Savio Vega touched the turnbuckle. What I'm saying is there's no way on his best day Savio Vega could beat Stone Cold Steve Well, you were Austin. counting on Savio being your chauffeur. That did not happen, and Savio Vega was victorious. Now the rematch has been signed for tomorrow night. And again, it's going to be a Caribbean strap match, and I would suggest that you probably still want Savio to, uh, well, with that provision, I imagine you still want to challenge him, do you not? I want to sweeten the pie, McMahon. Sweeten the pie. Savio Vega, you keep that stipulation in there, because you're going to be my chauffeur. And I'll tell you what, I'm so confident that this man is going to beat you tomorrow night that I'll put a stipulation in there. If Steve Austin, if Stone Cold Steve Austin doesn't beat you tomorrow night, Savio Vega, the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase, will forfeit his career. What? I will leave the World Wrestling Federation. Did you hear me, man? Did you hear me, Vega? I will leave the World Wrestling Federation. I thank you very Savio much. Vega. I'm sure Savio Vega will very much look forward to this opportunity. The rematch is on live tomorrow night, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. The thing that I noted here was basically you have an interview with The Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, under, wow, Undertaker, that's not right at all. Uh, with Ted DiBiase and Stone Cold Steve Austin, I should say. Completely different. And so basically, DiBiase does all the talking because, you know, that Steve Austin guy, he can't cut a promo. So it's just uh, it's just it's DiBiase doing all the talking for him. I also thought it was kind of weird to see Austin with like the mustache and goatee not connected to each other. You know, yeah. it was kind of kind of a strange look. So hopefully he, uh, as he would say on his podcast, tightens that up a little bit pretty soon. But uh, yeah, really, really uh, strange to see that, uh, that, you know, obviously, if they're teasing DiBiase leaving the company, they're obviously going to have enough faith in Austin to cut his own promos going forward. But at this point, they're like, nah, we'll have the million dollar man do all the talking for him. We got another night's worth of work out of him. Let's put it to good use. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Spoiler. <laughs> And then we have the Smoking Guns defending their newly won tag team titles against the Body Donners. So, obviously, Sonny's new charges against Sonny's old, old charges. Um, and we get the absolute delight of Hillbilly Jim on commentary. Oh, yeah. Um, Babyface yeah, Body Donners. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I would imagine they're probably not too far away from debuting their new manager, which is a rousing success that I'm sure you all remember fondly. Oh, yeah. You're t- are you talking about the Godwins? Or, or uh, oh, no, oh. Um, the, the body done. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> yes, he slash she is, is a great manager for sure. Yeah, I, I just think they, uh, they it didn't work and they stored that one in the bank thinking of when that would come in handy later and poor Mark Henry ended up suffering that thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. I will say, um, though, like at this point in time, I really love the, the, the way they're booking Sonny where it's kind of like, She's going from team to team because she just wants tag team titles. And at this point, you know, they had that sort of um, that that frequent line they had her uh, her spout off, you know, what Sonny wants, Sonny gets. So she was just kind of playing a lot of these teams for suckers just so she could, you know, continue to be the uh, manager of the tag team champions. And I thought it was actually, you know, really, really fun booking for Sonny at this point in time, considering this is a, uh, a moment in time when not a lot of women were being booked strongly in the WWF. They didn't have a, uh, a, a women's division at this point. So this was, uh, I thought this was always a fun moment for, for Sonny's character. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. I think it added some prestige to the tag belts as well, that someone would go to all this effort to stay with those belts. So. Right, um, something that's certainly not present most years now in the WWE. 
Yeah, including present day when uh, they seem to still not care that much about the tag team championships. No, not at all. The match yeah. itself gets started with a um a clothesline from Bart Gunn um as Harvey Whippleman comes into the aisle and takes notes. So there's an ongoing storyline here where he's keeping tabs on the officiating because there's been some dubious refereeing decisions recently, as though there was ever a period in time when there wouldn't be. Yeah. But um, this is certainly something that's going on right now. <laughs> yeah, so does this ever get a payoff by any chance? I'm, you know, I'm not really sure. These referee things with Harvey Whippleman have all seemed to have like melded together in my mind because it's not until... I always, f- for some reason, this... And you know when they the referees go on strike in '99? Yeah, yeah. That and Harvey Whippleman ends up being one of the scab referees. For some reason, this all seemed to be the same thing, but they're obviously too far apart to be connected. So I'm interested to see what does happen here. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, I, I wouldn't have thought there was even uh, like even seeing Harvey Whippleman in the aisle here. I was like, is this just like a one-off? Has this been an ongoing thing? So I guess uh, it is a, a multi-week little storyline they're doing here. All right then. Yeah, I, I want to say this is the, the second time so far I've seen it. I might be wrong on that, but I think it's the second time. Huh, all right. So Bart Gum works over the arm, hits a big press slam uh, before Skip fires back with a flying head scissors. And Billy comes in, hits a beautiful Northern Lights suplex and a clothesline. We've got some really good quick sequences between these teams to start off, which makes the match quite enjoyable and fast paced before we go to a commercial break. When we come back, we get a nice low bridge from Zip and a double team on Bart from the Body Donners. Um, Skip hits a beautiful gut wrench powerbomb for a two before Bart fires back with a jawbreaker and Skip slows things down with a chin lock. Bart then hits a German suplex for a two count, um, but Phineas Godwin comes out seemingly after um, Sonny. Hillbilly Jim gets up and stop him and Henry Godwin comes out from the back to help as well. The Body Donners do some more double teaming on Bart, including a double slingshot suplex, which was quite good. And Skip uh, hits a top rope crossbody, but Bart manages to roll through and pick up the one, two, three, and retain the tag belt successfully with a lot of shenanigans going on around the outside with Sonny and the Godwins. So what did you think about this one, Henry? I liked it, actually. I thought this was a pretty good match. It, again, this was another one they gave a good amount of time to. They gave it about 12 minutes. I thought these two teams actually worked pretty well together, surprisingly enough, because I got to assume this is, you know, they, they probably weren't working each other too much because the body Don is... I'm, again, I didn't even remember the body done as being baby faces, so this must be a pretty brief period of time. But uh, yeah, I thought they, they worked really well together. You know, it's not a five-star classic, but I mean, this was a perfectly acceptable TV match. And uh, yeah, real, really good stuff. A couple notes I made, uh, both of them actually kind of revolve around Skip um, during the match. There's at one point where... Uh, basically, so Skip exits the ring and goes to confront Sonny, which causes Jerry Lawler to say, she's not yours anymore. And all I could think of was, I mean, well, you know, uh, judging by what's going on with Sonny and Shawn Michaels behind the scenes around this time, that's actually a pretty accurate statement there. Um, <laughs> yeah. And also, like, shortly after that, did you notice that uh, Skip taunts Sonny by doing, like, a penis-thrusting gesture in her direction? No, I miss that completely. Yeah, he kind of does like a thing where he like juts his crotch out and he like, you know, puts his elbows. He's like pumping his elbows down by his uh, his waist. So it was I was like, wow, who would have thought that uh, Body Donna Skip was ushering in the Attitude Era right here on this very broadcast? <laughs> I was like, it's, it's a little it's awfully racy for, uh, you know, 1996 WWF. So especially when you, when you think about it, I mean, he's actually doing that to his real life girlfriend, just kind of, you know, thrusting his dick in her face. So, yeah, OK, why not? Um <laughs> But yeah, I thought this was actually a quite enjoyable match. 
Yeah, I definitely enjoyed this one. Um, certainly better than your usual tag team matches on Raw. And you're right about it getting good time as well. With only having three matches on this show, they each managed to get some good time devo- devoted to them. And I think it overall it does make the package more enjoyable than just a bunch of random squash matches and some interviews in between. I, I definitely prefer having some decent matches on the show. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think of a time when you know, Raw was just one hour long, whereas now it's, you know, three hours every Monday and it just wears out its welcome incredibly quickly. But this was, you know, really quick, easy watch because literally it was just three matches and we're out of here. So yeah, it was uh, all in all, you know, I, I know we're not at the end yet, but I did actually enjoy watching this episode of Raw mainly because it was like, wow, that went by incredibly quickly because those matches were actually all, you know, pretty pretty enjoyable and i mean goldust and uh warrior was not you know five-star classic again as i said but again better than uh better than their pay-per-view match so yeah this this was uh you know uh, uh, not to give my thoughts on uh, we still have one more match to go not to you know wrap up the entire thing but uh i thought you know fun fun show overall and this match was i would say probably my favorite match of the three that we got on this card was uh, was this tag match that we got here Agreed, agreed. And um, the next thing we see is some still shots of the Bulldog and um, Shawn Michaels title match from the night before, obviously still in the dark and issues with the lighting and whatnot. So they're going to use that as an excuse to carry this on for another night. Obviously, it's not really enough notice to change direction anyway when you've got to redo the pay-per-view, but nothing really to note there because it's going to be redone all over again tomorrow for the proper storyline payoff. Um, yeah. and we uh, there, well, actually, to- there, was, there was one thing I wanted to call attention to, if you don't mind was yeah, I, I, I had no recollection of them. You know, apparently the lights came on right before the main event. So basically they did a finish where I believe Shawn Michaels hit Bulldog with a German suplex and one ref ruled that Shawn Michaels' shoulders were down and said that British Bulldog was the champion. So one of those stills we got was actually Diana Smith holding up the title, uh, albeit, you know, upside down. Whoops. Um, but, like, I don't remember them ever doing a tease that, like, wow, the British Bulldog is the WWF champion. I had no recollection of that. So this was another pre- pleasant surprise, I should say, there. Uh, and I'm guessing probably the reason I don't remember it is because it was more overshadowed by, obviously, the technical difficulties. But, like, yeah, literally Diana Smith in one of those stills is holding up the WWF title obviously you know on behalf of the bulldog but i i had no memory of that whatsoever yeah they get some mileage out of that photo as well they certainly milked it for what it was worth yeah and and they're doing this is still the ongoing thing where it's like they're they're playing up the notion that Shawn michaels tried to hit on diana at some point right yeah absolutely they sure are yeah because i think they also showed a, a quick video clip too where where Clarence Mason said something about Shawn Michaels getting a subpoena for attempted alienation of affection, which I'm pretty sure is not a thing. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm certain that's not a real law. Yeah, I'm, I'm not an expert on law here in the States, but I've, I've never heard that one before. But it is very alliterative and sounds nice. But uh, yeah, so again, I guess the, the feud must continue. Shawn Michaels and the Bulldog, which is A-OK with me because I'm a fan of both those guys too. Do you think when Clarence Mason was reading out that um, that subpoena and talking about alienation of affection and appearing before the court of law, can you just imagine um, Chris Candido sat backstage somewhere going, hang on a minute, I might have a case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah you, uh, you're not kidding about that one. Uh, also, did you know, by the way, Clarence Mason is actually a real, he's a shoot lawyer. I did not know that. Yeah. That was brilliant. Yeah, he's not just, uh, you know, on-camera lawyer. He's actually a lawyer in real life, too. So, Yeah. Pretty pretty interesting stuff there, because I didn't learn that until much later. Oh, very interesting. He's um, one of my sort of forgotten, underrated sort of past 
wrestling names, I guess you could call it. He's one of those guys that I think I remember more fondly than most people do. Yeah, well, actually, it's funny you mentioned that because there was another... I listened to like uh, another podcast recently. I kind of like binge listened to it, and they were doing all the, the, the Monday Nitro episodes in the year 2000, which is... Wow. Yeah, and what I had forgotten there was that none other than Clarence Mason turns up as a protege of um, Stevie Ray and uh, and Ahmed Johnson, who was actually going by Big T at the time. Uh, so yeah, Clarence Mason played, I believe the character's name was Jay Biggs in WCW, kind of playing a, uh, a variation of his Clarence Mason character. I had zero recollection of that either, but uh, Clarence Mason eventually turns up in WCW as well. And in a few years' time, I will get up to that and I will tell you all about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You only got about four years to go. Yeah. Um, from there, we go to our main event of the evening, another King of the Ring qualifying matchup. It's Vader taking on Ahmed Johnson. So this was one I was very interested to see. Two big guys going at it. I'm a huge Vader fan. And Ahmed, in his early run in the WWF, was actually pretty decent and pulled out some cool-looking spots and major jaw drop once in a while. So were you excited for this one as well? Yeah, I was a huge fan of Ahmed Johnson at this point in time, to be honest with you. I was Again, I'm probably in the minority there, but I, I loved Ahmed Johnson. I thought he was badass. I think one of his first spots when he came in was scoop-slamming Yokozuna, of all things, if you remember that. That's, yeah, I mean, yeah. Talk about putting somebody over strong, like right out of the gate, like Jesus Christ. Because uh, I think the only person we'd ever seen... No, we hadn't seen anybody do it at that point. Cause, oh, no, we did the Lex Express, the, the Lex Luger uh, Body Slam Challenge. That that was about it. But, uh, yeah, and, that, and I guess that was like three years, two years prior. So, I mean, yeah, Ahmed comes in, and like that's one of his first things is, wow, he just picks up Yokozuna, Yokozuna and body slams him. So, and I always thought he was a, a pretty fun character, you know, just because he basically is he's kind of like a madman, you know. His, his promos yeah, don't really... Uh, yeah, his promos don't really carry him very well because you can't understand what the hell he's saying. But, uh, I mean, yeah, just just really fun character to watch. And, uh, again, some of those spots he would bust out where he would, like, try to do planches over the top rope. It's like, dude, what the hell are you doing? So, yeah, he was. I always thought he was fun to watch. You weren't the only person to forget Lex Luger slamming Yokozuna either because when Ahmed Johnson does slam Yokozuna, I remember JR saying, I don't think we've ever seen anyone slam Yokozuna before. <laughs> of course, of course. It's not like the other guy was over in WCW at the time when he did it. So, you know, that's Just the way you worded it. Not, that's the first time he's ever been slammed. It's, I don't think we've seen anyone slam him before. It's just so great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. And the other thing to look forward to in this match is Owen Hart's joining the commentary team. So a huge Owen Hart fan here. Very, yes. very excited by that. And um, we get a one of those little spots where they say the sponsors for the show and who Raw is brought to you by. And it's a got milk ad. So that's the first time I've seen one of those in wrestling now. Yeah, I also noted the Sega Saturn Slam of the Week. So talk about a, a brief time capsule in history there. The Sega Saturn, which uh, did not last very long because the PlayStation, I think, just kind of blew it out of the water. Indeed. We got a stare down to start the match. Um, Vader spits at Ahmed Johnson, which is quite gross, and Ahmed comes at him with some strikes and some chokes before Vader hits a nice heelish eye poke to get himself away and puts Ahmed in the corner and begins unloading on him with some pretty huge bombs. Mm-hmm. Ahmed comes back with a clothesline and then a what I can describe as, I guess, a Cactus Jack crossbody. So if you picked it, picked yeah. it a Cactus clo- clothesline over the top, but this was a crossbody block. And with two guys the size of these two, it was impressive. Oh, yeah, that was really cool. And what you were saying there, like, after Vader spit in Ahmed face, Ahmed's face and he was just kind of, like, going nuts, if you look at the crowd, they were going nuts for Ahmed at that point when he's just, like, he, I think he ends up, like, you know, 
just basically punching Vader in the face and knocking him down in one of the corners. And the crowd is just like, yeah, you know, they're going crazy. So the, the crowd was, uh, was loving Ahmed for this match, at least. Absolutely. And when we go to the outside, we actually get a quick glimpse at the commentary table and we see Owen Hart sat at the table. And I just can't picture him doing anything other than knocking on your door and asking if you've been introduced to Jesus Christ the way he's <laughs> <dressed> for this. <laughs> nice. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, Jim Cornette gets himself involved and hits Ahmed Johnson with the racket. This sends him to the outside to stalk Cornette as we go to a commercial. When we come back, Vader hits a big knee lift and the, the big hoe train attack with the, um, the arms around the head. And then we get one from the second rope, which was quite cool, and that allows him to pick up a two count. Ahmed again comes back with a clothesline, but Vader hits him with a big stinger splash in the corner um, and then a clothesline and locks in a chin lock to slow things down. When Ahmed gets back on the offense, he hits an extremely impressive vertical suplex and then slam, um, before falling victim to a slam. And Vader goes up for the moonsault, which he misses. But still, whenever you see Vader attempt the moonsault, it is pure joy to the eyes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Whether he hits it or not, I'm just always impressed every single time that he can do that at that size. I don't know if I've ever seen him hit it, but I do want to see him hit it. (laughs) He's never hit it because if he did, he would probably kill somebody. 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Ahmed fires back with a couple of clotheslines and a power slam before Cornette gets on the apron to get involved again. Um, he sends Va- he's sent into Vader, sorry, and then we get a spine buster, but Owen Hart comes off the top rope with his cast to the back of Ahmed's head, and that is enough for Vader to pick up the one, two, three, and Ahmed Johnson to eat his first ever loss in the WWF. Wow, that was his first loss. Indeed, yeah. And... Ahmed Johnson here is out cold, so they're playing that he's been concussed by Owen Hart's cast, and we go to a commercial break, and when we come back, they are loading Ahmed onto a stretcher for what is about to be one of the more famous angles of 1996, (laughs) and something I had vivid memories of before this, but it was still very cool to go back and watch again. Yeah, as soon as uh, Owen hit Ahmed in the back of the head with the cast, I was like, oh, that's this moment. Okay, because I I did remember that part being like the, uh, the setup for what happens later. But uh, I didn't realize it was this this specific match going in, so that was kind of like a nice little surprise we had at the end of the uh, the show here. Yeah, between this and the um, the thing with the body donor earlier that you were talking about, I was actually watching this and thinking, there's more moments that resemble the Attitude Era on this show than I thought, even though I originally got you on to talk about the, the evolution over on WCW's side of the fence. But there's certainly some more adult themes creeping onto this show and of, at, at the first match as well, even um, Lawler saying whether we're going to get a king or a queen of the ring. There's um, <laughs> a bit more racy content on Raw than I remember at this time. Yeah, and actually I think a, a good example of that is the Sunny character too, where she's kind of, uh, you know, now she's coming out with the smoking guns and wearing, you know, like the shorter skirt, kind of like the sexy cowboy outfit. I think we're also, uh, are we also at this point getting those sort of like things they do at the beginning of the show where Sonny is like, you know, uh, like kneeling down in the water and being like, parental discretion is advised, like that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and Tickle Me Elmo's not far off too, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, Actually, no, I think that might be 98. But no, you're right. There's, she's done the stuff on the beach and at the pool table, I think, at this point. They've all happened. Yeah, yeah. So there's def- there is definitely some racy stuff here. Uh, and then, if- and of course, what happens at the end here is is certainly uh, quite the moment in time, for sure. So I don't want to interrupt you there, but uh, I'll let you get to it if you want to cover that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, the officials wheel Ahmed Johnson to the back on a stretcher, and before they can load him into an ambulance, they're interrupted by Goldust, who, with all his medical expertise, insists that he knows what Ahmed Johnson needs, and it's a little bit of mouth-to-mouth. <laughs> and... 
I'm just going to say before we, we, we dig into the obvious homosexual overtones of all this here, not for nothing, Gold Dust Mouth to Mouth did wake Ahmed Johnson up. Right, exactly. <laughs> and Vince McMahon on commentary, I, I wrote down his quote because he literally says, quote, that's the most revolting thing I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, so him saving a man's life is revolting to you? Because, you know, he did. He woke him up. He, he saved Ahmed's life, potentially, you know. He, he yeah, woke I mean- him up from his concussion. There's eight officials around there all doing, you know, two-thirds of F all, and Goldust enters the scene, and within 30 seconds, Ahmed's alive. Yeah. It, I'm, again, in terms of my own personal medical expertise, I don't know if, you know, if somebody gets a concussion, if giving them mouth-to-mouth actually would help. I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to guess probably not, but uh, hey, you know, in this case, it did work. So I think Ahmed owes Goldust a huge debt of gratitude there. Absolutely. But instead of repaying that, he comes alive, and Goldust is obviously decided that it's time to, to get the hell out of there. <laughs> Ahmed begins to immediately tear up the backstage area, including a very harsh moment where he lifts Bob Holly up by the throat and put, pins him up against a wall, Loved searching it. for gold dust. Yeah, great. Um, a little um, sort of half-morphed Bob Holly little uh, appearance here, so he's not quite Sparky Plug, and he's definitely not hardcore yet. You no, know, not at all. He actually just became hardcore on my timeline in uh, on the Raw Attitude podcast. It was... Uh, what was it? February of 1999 is when they first referred to him as Hardcore Holly, and that literally just happened on my timeline. So I was like, "Oh, nice little, nice little moment in time there when he finally gets a push after being with the company for like five years." Yeah, I was listening to that um, one of your recent episodes, um, and it brought up something I do I had no memory of whatsoever, and that was that little angle between Bob and Bart. Um, so I never even realized that happened until I was listening to one of your most recent episodes. Yeah, it, that's actually so. Bart Gunn, you know, after winning the Brawl Fall, was off TV literally for six months. He comes back and has a match with Bob Holly for the Hardcore Title, and it's a really fun, you know, eight minute Hardcore match where they're smashing the shit out of each other with fruit and with like all sorts of other stuff. And then uh, Bart Gunn is immediately just gone until WrestleMania pretty much. He doesn't have another match. This is his final match on Raw. Obviously, we know what happens at, at WrestleMania 15, but that's the end of Bart Gunn. So the, the aforementioned Bart Gunn, who we were just talking about earlier on this show as part of the Smoking Guns, you know, he gets a, he gets what is, you know, what should be a career highlight for him winning the Brawl for All, and then they just keep him on ice for literally like six months. It's so ridiculous. Indeed. So if you haven't heard about that yet, definitely go and check out the Raw Attitude podcast because it's awesome listening and it also happens to highlight probably the best period of WWF wrestling of all time. So absolutely go and listen to that. Um, as we head towards that era here, we see um, Ahmed Johnson then after you know being a little bit cruel to Bob Holly, continues to tear up the locker room, comes into contact with Mark Miro. Now, Mark Miro is too big of a star to be lifted and choked, so Miro tells <laughs> him where Goldust's locker room is. And Goldust has what appears to be some random jobber guarding the door, and Ahmed Johnson, in a fantastic spot, tackles him through the door, just collapsing the door frame as they go through. It was brilliant. Oh, that was great, yes. Just some guy in, like, a pink wife beater standing by the door. Yeah, absolutely. And then Goldust obviously, you know, bails again. Ahmed Johnson nails the cameraman, and we go off the air with a really cool visual. Um, WWF occasionally has these brilliant moments of production where we stay with the feed from the camera that's lay on the floor from the knocked-out cameraman, and we see sort of an upside-down or side-on view of Ahmed just continuing to tear up the backstage area as we go off the air. So I actually really liked that ending. What did you think? 
I, I did like that ending a lot too because you don't always get the you know acknowledgement of the cameraman even being there, right? You know, it's kind of like guys are just carrying about backstage doing whatever the hell they're doing. But in this case, Ahmed Johnson is just so pissed off about what happened to him that he's you know manhandling Bob Holly, who at this time is also a babyface, like Ahmed Johnson's a babyface. He runs over that wife beater guy, and then he kind of you know breaks the fourth wall a little bit and punches the camera guy down to the ground as well. So you know it was very believable. It was a very believable rampage for Ahmed. Johnson, you know, given the circumstance, if you want, if you want to go that route and say like, oh, the Ahmed character would be completely, you know, pissed off about being essentially kissed on the mouth by Goldust. Okay, you know, then it's it makes sense. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, and actually, on that note too, this is still a time when WWF is kind of going forward with the, you know, the more. Uh, I guess, shall we say, you know, androgynous Goldust, who is still kind of playing mind games with his opponents and kind of, as you said, the homosexuality is, is if not outright, you know, mentioned, it's, it's at the very least teased, but more like outright mentioned on their part. So they're still kind of going with that at this point. And I think in the near months, they t- they start toning it down a little bit because they get a little more... Uh, you know, feedback from people to being like, you know, people are responding negatively to this, whatever. But it was always nice to see that at this point, they're still, you know, they're still going with what br- with what brought Goldust to the dance in the first place, which was, you know, playing on people's sort of um, distaste with the with the homosexuality. Because hey, you know, 1996, I guess people people just weren't ready for you know the acknowledgement of a gay character. So clearly, you know, he he has to be a bad guy for that reason. Um, but yeah, it was uh, this was. All throughout, I enjoyed the match. I enjoyed Ahmed Johnson versus Vader. I thought the extracurricular activity with the mouth-to-mouth was was brilliant because it's just kind of like it plays into the Goldust character perfectly and also plays into Ahmed perfectly that he would go insane as he usually does. And then the end segment where, where Ahmed basically you know takes out a whole bunch of people in the locker room. All great stuff, in my opinion. Oh, 100%. I really enjoyed this episode of Raw, way more than I thought I would. I've got to admit, when I first contacted you to do do this um, show with me, it was simply because I knew what was happening on Nitro, and I had no clue what was going to be on Raw. It was very much an afterthought. But when I watched this for us to um, to take my notes for us to record together, I was really pleasantly surprised with what I saw. I thought this was an episode of Raw that went quickly, focused on good characters, strong characters, storyline advancement, and decent wrestling so overall definitely a thumbs up for this episode of raw from me um and one point you made in in the little wrap up there about um them being 1996 and a gay character would definitely have to be a heel i'm not 100 percent convinced in fact i'm not even 50 percent convinced that in 2019 the wwe would be nuanced enough to handle a gay character and not be a heel yet, yeah, anyway <laughs> that's true that is true well unfortunately they fired darren young so i guess we'll never find out no, definitely not. Yeah. Although, uh, well, actually, isn't... Certainly, um, certainly not anytime soon. Yeah, well, I was going to say, though, I think they have Sonya Deville, who is is openly gay, too, I think, right? I'm not 100% sure, to be honest with you. Um, I never like to assume those things with the women's wrestlers for fear of the backlash it will cause me if I get it wrong. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she is, so it's okay. <laughs> but they don't. I don't <laughs> think it's really... It's not really part of her character. It's just kind of like, you know, the, this is who she is, etc., etc. And, you know, she just happens to be the first you know, openly gay performer. They don't, they don't really lean into it very heavily. But um, and I'm okay you know, with if that. They, uh, yeah, exactly. If they ever did, I would be worried of them, you know, doing something completely offensive to mess it all up. So, so maybe I'm it's better that they keep in the background. I'm certain she would begin to finish matches by hitting on opponents and freaking them out. Oh yeah, of course, of course. Peace God. Peace God. Now the shit is explained. I'm taking niggas on a trip straight through memory lane. It's like that jaw. It's like that jaw. It's like that jaw. Let me take a trip down memory lane. 
so that is raw in the can. Um, both re- both of us really enjoyed that, so certainly it's going to put up a little bit of a fight for Nitro later. But for now, we've reached the halfway mark of the show. I don't know if you've heard recently, but what I've been doing lately, Henry, is a little uh, segment called Memorabilia Lane, mm. where we talk about a past memory of any piece of wrestling merchandise from any period in your life that you remember. That being said, I've kind of put this on you on the spot. Do you have anything off the top of your head that you've owned in your lifetime that you'd like to discuss on here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can tell you right off the top of my head, I've actually posted this on our Twitter before, that I still have my Hasbro collection from you know the, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, I used to, obviously by this time, I think in WWF, they might have segued into the Jax figures. Um, yep. But just in terms of uh, it, what always has the fondest memory for me when I think of wrestling memorabilia is 100% those Hasbro figures uh, with the you know the matching blue ring that went along with it because yep. I, I can't even count how many hours I wild away doing matches with my Hasbro figures over the years and even ones like most of my the sad thing is like you know obviously as a, I was a kid so most of the figures were being bought by my parents for Christmas and things like that and I had a lot of jobber figures in there like you know Repo Man and El Matador <laughs> so they they weren't even very good characters but i still you know got a lot of mileage out of them just because you know you make do with what you have right so oh yeah yeah so like i remember back then and this actually tie this can tie into our nitro talk because i was a huge razor ramon mark as a kid he was literally my favorite uh wwf wrestler so you're damn right that for the majority of my hasbro time i had the i had my uh, little fake title on that razor ramon figure for the majority of the time so he definitely won a world title in my personal world i can tell you that much Oh, nice one. Razor Ramon's a Hasbro that I never had the pleasure of owning, so very happy to hear that one with you. Um, would you say that Razor was your favorite Hasbro, or do you have another one that would pip it for top spot? Yeah, it's tough to say because the the way that some of the figures were constructed, like the Razor Hasbro basically has like one arm in a clothesline position, if I remember correctly, and the other yep. is like, I think that his arm, he's like making a fist kind of like clutched down toward his side, so it wasn't the best uh and like some of those figures like there was one hulk hogan figure where he comes posed in a bear hug and it's like you can literally do nothing else with him so i remember a couple of the ones like uh the jake roberts figure i remember having a lot of like uh quote-unquote flexibility with not actual flexibility because they're plastic but (laughs) um like he had like both his arms at his side which was good because it let you kind of do a bunch of different stuff with him you could pick up the hands for like a punch or you could scoop slam guys or things like that there was a lot of like there were a lot of things you could do with it so um i mean obviously you know i i I got the most mileage out of the Razor figure just because I loved Razor and I was going to make do, even if it was, you know, a a shittily posed figure, I was going to use that fucker all the way. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I mean, but in terms of the actual like playability of the figures, I remember, I remember also, this is a strange one too, the Repo Man one I mentioned was actually pretty good because you could do a lot with him because he was, he basically had his arms at his side so you could just manipulate him any way you wanted to. So (laughs) those were my favorite figures too. The ones like, they also did ones where it was like um, there's basically like a T on the back where you push down and the guy would hop in the air and the figures like the legs were already joined together which I absolutely hated like the Brutus yeah. Beefcake figure was one like that I, I couldn't stand that so um, yeah it, it kind of you were kind of like at the mercy basically of the way they designed the figure you know I think it was um, which body part they had to reuse for each series by, by that point with a lot of those. So the jumpers, as they're called, are definitely a bane of many wrestling figure collectors. My Absolutely. actual fa- 
favorite was one though because it's the original series one ultimate warrior in the green trunks it's not the best looking figure in the world for some reason it has a molded on weight belt as well as being <laughs> a jumper but it was the first hasbro that i got so it's always uh, nice. a place in my heart i had that one yeah he had yeah he did have the legs joined together right yeah absolutely yeah i remember that I, I always love to hear someone else talking about Hasbro nostalgia. It's certainly a thing that's definitely at the forefront of wrestling figure, figure collectors at the moment, but it's still an old favorite of mine. Definitely. Did you also have the uh, the later Ultimate Warrior figure that basically like had his arms like down at his side, but you could lift them up into like press slam position if you wanted to? I did. I had all three of the Ultimate Warrior figures. I was very lucky for a while, and then it dropped off, and then it came back late. So I've kind of... All the ones I was missing are right in the middle of the line. So when I was a kid, it was... Um, do you, did you ever see the WWF magazine spread with The Undertaker with all the figures in front of him? No, I haven't, actually. Okay. It basically says Undertake them all, and he's got his hands either side of about 20 figures. And re- I think Repo Man was one of those ones, and it was all like Repo Man, Nails, Berserker, <laughs> you know, High Energy, Owen Hart, all the sort of 92, 93 era guys. And they were the series I could never find. So I found all the early ones and all the late ones, but not the ones in the middle. Nice. I, on that note, I actually had the Berserker one, and that one stuck out to me for a couple of reasons. Number one was he was, I think he was wearing a goddamn Viking helmet that you couldn't take off, which was really bizarre because he would never actually wrestle with that. But, you know, whatever you make do with what you have. But the other thing yeah. was that he came, he actually came with like a brown robe that you could like take off and put on him, if you remember that. So yeah, that was sure something, do. yeah, that was something that they didn't do with a lot of figures where you actually had something that went with them. You know, I can only remember, I think Coco, Be- I had the Coco Beware figure that had Frankie the Parrot that came with it, which was awesome. I had the Boss Man one that came with the Nightstick. Um, unfortunately, though, I remember it got stuck because I had him instead of like uh, holding it by, you know, there's like the long end and there's the short part of it. So yep. I had him hold the short part of it because I thought that was how you would swing it. And it just got permanently stuck in his hand like that because you were supposed to hold it the other way, like with the long end. So, oh, no. Yes. Yeah, so for eternity, my bossman figure always had the nightstick stuck in his hand, which, as you know, would clearly be an automatic disqualification. I, uh, yeah, absolutely it would be. I've got a similar story of woe when one of my friend's dogs bit Jake's Damien in half and my Damien was forever oh. held together by, by um, masking tape. Oh, no. I actually, <laughs> I actually had it. I went back and looked recently. There were a couple figures that uh, like broke over time. Like one, I had Shawn Michaels in the rockers and his arm broke off. And I had the Texas Tornado just basically like was just like, you know, the, the torso and the bottom part completely detached from each other. So, yeah, it was uh, very sad in retrospect that, uh, you know, HBK with one arm and the Texas Tornado, you know, it, it was bad enough he was already minus one foot. Now he's minus his uh, bottom oh. half. <laughs> he's minus his entire <laughs> bottom half, too, in my in my Hasbro world. So, yeah, very, very sad days for Kerry Von Erich. Ouch. <laughs> Well, that is brilliant. Thank you so much for coming up with that on the spot. I do appreciate that. Um, oh, no problem. That, that, of course, is the halfway portion done and dusted. So it's probably time for what I would consider the main event of the show now, where we're going to take a look at Nitro, which was the whole reason for, for getting involved here and doing this together. Are you ready to go over to WCW and see what is about to change the shape of wrestling? <laughs>
mentioned earlier that WCW tonight was in the Macon Coliseum. I did actually look this up, and I found one other noteworthy event from this same arena. It was actually back on November 20th of 95. That was also an episode of Nitro. And that episode of Nitro that was in Macon featured the first ever one-on-one match between Hulk Hogan and Sting. So I thought that was, you know, there's, there's a little bit of history going in, I guess. Yeah, that's very cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it ended in no contest because, you know, it's free TV and they're not going to do a clean finish on Nitro with Hogan and Sting. But I was like, wow, that's that's kind of cool that they did it in, of all places, Macon, Georgia, which you wouldn't think would be a marquee spot for Hogan and Sting, but sure. No, it definitely plays up the um, the very early anything-can-happen feel of Nitro, I guess. So that was very cool. Absolutely. So the show gets started. It's the first ever two-hour episode of Nitro, which I'm happy for on this show, but I'm sad for what it means for my <laughs> timeline going forward. Oh, yeah. More and more content to watch for each episode. Oh, yeah. And um, Tony Schiavone's on commentary, and I just think, where is Bischoff? Like, this is the first time ever a show's open without Eric Bischoff on commentary, and he's actually with Larry Zabisco. So where's Heenan and where's Mongo? Um, Pretty quickly, we find out that there's going to be two separate announced teams, which is something Raw does later on as well for a while, um, for the first and second hour. So I actually found this to be quite cool, a little change of pace. And um, they're stationed at ringside, as opposed to the the typical Nitro um, table, uh, announced table that everyone's familiar with up on the rampway. Yeah, that was, that was actually the note I made as well. I was like, oh, it's kind of weird to see them down by ringside instead of, you know, standing near the entrance ramp. Yeah, absolutely. And they give us a little rundown of what's to come, and we're going to see Sting up against his good friend Scott Steiner, which I'm looking forward to, and the Giant defending the World Heavyweight Championship against a Shark, which I'm somewhat less looking forward to. <laughs> yeah, right. But before we get there, we open up with the American Males taking on Ric Flair and Arn Anderson. And other than having the one of the coolest theme songs in WCW, the American Males, I always found a little bit corny. I mean, they were good enough in the ring, but fake strippers were not my my cup of tea as a character. What did you think? Yeah, I I thought... I mean, for one thing, shout out to Scott Cavaliero, the huge uh, mega fan of (laughs) the American Males. Got to do it. Got to shout out Scott Cavaliero. Uh, But one thing, on the note of the American Males, there was a point where, like, you know, during this match, they clean house on Arn Anderson and Flair. And the crowd, they're, like, doing that sort of overhand clap that they do. And when you see the crowd, a lot of them were doing the overhand clap along with them. So I was like... Was there a point when the American males were actually over? Like, did that actually happen? Because I didn't, I didn't remember them being hugely popular. But uh, you know, maybe they were. Maybe the crowd was just caught up in all the excitement. I don't know. But uh, yeah, capsule that one. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But yeah, it's always seeing Flair and Anderson together. I was like, oh yeah, awesome. This is great that we got this. You know, to start off the show because I mean, two of the most consummate WCW guys, obviously two you know longtime members of the Four Horsemen. I was like, oh, this is great stuff. And there's some some moves that Arn Anderson does in here uh, are, are just you know. Aside from, of course, the spine buster, which is always awesome, I had to point out that you know his DDT is amazing. He doesn't do it in this match, but there's a there's a thing I've seen him do in the past where like every time he does he does it, I'm just like, oh, it, it's just amazing. Where sometimes he'll you know cock his fist like he's going to punch his opponent, and the opponent yeah. will then duck down. And what does Iron Anderson do? Nails him with a DDT as soon as they duck down. It's it's just like one of those those little like wrestling psychology moments that's just like oh just just fucking genius, you know. And again, as I said, I was always a WWF loyalist, so I missed a lot of Iron Anderson matches essentially. But when you go back and watch him and see stuff like that, it's just you gain like you gain a, a much bigger appreciation 
for what Arn Anderson could do. Because, I mean, if you just look at the guy, he kind of looks like, you know, high school history teacher. <laughs> but <laughs> but when you actually go back and see him in the ring, he just does these little things, these little touches where you're like, oh, man, that's just that's just great stuff. So, yeah, very, very excited for this opening match, I have to say I was. My Arn Anderson, um, my personal Arn Anderson nickname is the toughest dad at the pub. <laughs> nice. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and after months of being together, Liz and Woman finally coordinate a little bit in their outfits, and they're wearing both wearing green sequins. Um, not the exact same dress, but they appear to have dressed from the same place this time around, so that's quite cool. Zabisco tells us on commentary that the NFL boys, so Kevin Green and Mongo, are in deep trouble when they have to face these two members of the Horsemen coming up at the Great American Bash, so... Definitely looking forward to seeing um, how all that goes down. Um, Mongo's not going to be on commentary because he's in training with Kevin Green. More on that later. Yeah, what a shame. What a shame, excuse me. (laughs) If you hear me losing my voice, I've been sick for the past two weeks, so I apologize. Oh, no worries at all. I appreciate you coming on and giving us what voice you've got left. No, no problem, no problem. The heels start off with some double team and some cheating, um, really showing that they are a bit of a well-oiled machine and trying to sell the story here that these guys are wrestlers and it's going to be tough to beat them for guys that don't have any experience. The faces do fight back briefly and we have a bit of a brawl. Buff hits a couple of drop kicks and the heels powder to the outside. Arn Anderson gets an arm to the post and we go to a commercial. Um, when we come back, um, Buff is firing up a little bit with a backdrop. Scotty Riggs comes in, um, but the heels start to work over the leg. Ric Flair's butler sends some champagne to the commentary team at ringside, which is quite a, a funny little touch here. Um, if you've been listening recently, Flair's got the VIP table set up not far from the ring at each show on Macho Man's money. Mm-hmm. Yep, I thought that was a great touch, yeah. Um, back in the ring, we get a shin breaker from Flair, an enziguri from Riggs, and then a hot tag to Buff, who comes in, hits a slam, a drop kick, a backdrop, and a missile drop kick. This is a really... One of my old favorites, a wrestling logic spot here. So he hits a small package on Flair. Arn Anderson comes in while the referee's distracted and flips them over. Mm-hmm. And then as the referee's distracted with Arn, Riggs comes in and flips them over again. And you've just got to think, yeah. there's two people in the small package. Surely someone could have kicked out at some point. Right, exactly. Because nobody ever really wins with the small package anyway. So No. Woman gouges the eyes of Riggs right in front of the referee, um, who yeah. begins to argue with her. And then Arn Anderson hits a DDT for the one, two, three in what was a, a pretty decent opener. Yeah, that was actually a note I made too. I was, when she raked Riggs' eyes, I was like, surely the referee saw that, right? Because that was you know right in front of him. But uh, but no DQ. But uh, yeah, one well one note I made, and maybe this is you know because you you've been following the show every single week, it doesn't jump out as much. But when I saw Woman, I was like, oh boy, Ugh. you know, because. Knowing just just knowing what happens there, I was like, oh crap! You know that's just sad, um, which is you know unfortunate. But that's unfortunately every time I see woman, that is what I think of because you know it's a, a bit of a sad end. But but not to dwell on that, I, I did think the champagne was a very nice touch with the candles on it on the table. That was very good. I made a note that we got uh, two vintage Tony Schiavone lines in one sentence because at one point he says, "Well, fans, this is a first actually in our sport." So I was like, you get first of all, you get Tony Schiavone saying fans, and you get him saying in our sport. So he's, you're covering two bases right there. Uh, toward the end of the match, Flair gets in a shoving match with referee Randy Anderson, and Randy Anderson gets the better of Flair, kind of like pushing him onto his ass. I was like, wow, that's that's something right there. Flair just sells for anybody, clearly, even if it's a referee who's like half his size. 
Yeah, I think I think you're right there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, that that was pretty much what I noted. I also love the fact that after the match, Flair pours champagne over his head to celebrate because he's awesome, and uh, and then they do the promo. I don't know if you were going to touch on the promo afterwards, but uh, the the note I made from that was that Flair kind of misquotes that classic '70s song because he says "skyrockets at night, afternoon delight." So it's kind of like. Well, are, are they at night or then the afternoon? Which one is it? You know, just just kind of botched it a little bit. But uh, were you going to cover the post-match promo too? Yeah, I think I'll splice a little bit of it in here. Um, but the first note on it was, I actually thought Arn Anderson cut a really good promo before Flair took over. That's yeah. something I don't note, note very often that Arn really brings it in the, in the promos. Mm-hmm. Yes, once again, the experienced, the diabolical Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, as we go to Mean Gene Okerlund. Gene? All right, I thank you very much, Tony Schiavone. Ladies, Art Anderson, Elizabeth Woman, Ric Flair. Come on in, if you would, please, very quickly. I think maybe you and Mr. Anderson here have uh, dug a bit of a hole for yourself because at the Great American Bash, June the 16th, in Baltimore, Maryland, live on pay-per-view, yes, you're going to be facing none other than Steve McMichael, his partner, Kevin Green. What a bombshell. Let me tell Green and McMichaels like it is. I ain't never met a football player that I couldn't walk over the top of to get to a better fight. I never saw a woman that Ric Flair couldn't have just like that. It just so happens, McMichaels, it's your old lady. Now, we don't respect anybody that has to wear protective gear because when you come into our house, it's man-to-man, hand-to-hand. Keep that in mind when you come and see the horseman. You uh, eyeballed Deborah McMichael for a long time. Come in here, girls. Uh, Ladies. We got a new saying. Liz, woman myself, double A, we've been to the Keys all weekend. We got a new saying. Sky rockets at night. Woo! Afternoon light. McMichael. Green. Wherever you are, and I don't care how many times I'll throw, you've been in your lifetime. Commissioner Pete Roselle better step in now. You know why? You want to know why? Hey, 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 hey. Come on, Flair, don't make up. That's why, McMichael, while you've been playing football, I've been making up a lost time. Down Austin Way, Deborah belongs to the nature boy. Well, I don't know about that. Elizabeth, what are your feelings about uh, Is this two timing in your estimation? Oh, no. The champ can have anything he wants. Oh, please. And you know what? Another little secret. You know, Savage, everybody thought that I was Liz and Woman's sugar daddy. Wrong with your bankroll, brother. She's me and double Thank you very much. I'm sorry. And essentially, um, they're just running down um, Kevin Green and and Mongo. And the big thing for Flair is he basically says that while they're in training, he'll look after Deborah, which has been an ongoing storyline the last few weeks. So (laughs) I'm um, interested to see how that actually does pay off with Ric Flair and Deborah. But yeah, good promo, which I'll splice in um, before we go to the next commercial. And when we do come back from the commercial, we actually see that montage I was talking about earlier with the with the um, footballers, and they show them. They, did you? I don't know if you noticed this or not, but I found this really. 
I don't know, silly. And it kind of <laughs> took me out of the moment where they show and they make a big deal of them putting every weight on the stack. Yes. And then as soon as they're lifting the weights, you can clearly see they're only lifting half the stack. <laughs> oh, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> That's awesome. Like, every plate, every plate, fill the stack. And then they're doing the, I, I can't remember what it was. I think it might've been like one of the lap pulls or something. And they've clearly only got half the plates on there. Yeah. Every plate, every plate. Okay. Cut. We're cut. Okay. Yeah. Make sure you take only half the plates on there, please. Cause I, I can't lift all the plates. All I had to do was um, film them from the other angle, and it would have been fine. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Well, that's WCW camera work for you right there, WCW production. Uh, what I noted was, like, this segment kind of had, like, all the sort of, like, unintentional homoeroticism of, like, a 1980s action movie, you know? Where it's, like, <laughs> like Tango and Cash or one of those, where it's, like, you know, it's just kind of, uh, it's over the top, but not in the way that they plan it, essentially. So it's just, like, two guys being like, yeah, man, you got this, you got this, you know? So, yeah, Steve, Steve McMichael and Kevin Green. I think Kevin Green actually is in the in the NFL Hall of Fame. Pretty sure Mongo isn't, but he does have that Super Bowl ring. So they do have pretty pretty good athletic pedigrees coming into this. Yeah, I'm certainly excited as a, as a one-off for that. Um, not as excited to watch Mongo's continued career progression after that, but I think this tag match has got some real potential. Yeah, it's actually, you know, looking back on it, when Mongo actually gets in the ring, he never really seems to get better, you know? I, I feel like he's always just kind of not great, <laughs> you know? It's, you you would think the more he gets in, the more reps he gets, he would do a better job in the ring, but I remember, like, you know, even well into, uh, you know, 97, 98, when he's still wrestling, he's still not very good. Firm but fair. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, Mongo. You got that soup. <laughs> He's got that Super Bowl ring to fall back on. No, he'll do all right. Yeah, I mean, you're you're a world class athlete in one sport, which is one more than me. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, from there, we go to our next matchup, which is Steve Dole taking on the Mauler. And yes, you would be right in thinking, who are these lads? <laughs> because that's what I was thinking when I was flicking through. The Mauler is actually brought out by Colonel Robert Parker, and we told it's his new charge. So this is his debut, and um. They're kind of making a big deal out of his potential. It's essentially I can't I, I'm going to get it wrong now because I didn't write it down. It's one of the Beverly brothers with short hair and chaps. Right, correct. Yep. Um, and the funny thing too is like like you said, they play this up like this is Colonel Parker's new protege. This is literally the only time the Mauler has a televised match. So it it's like it, and and well, I mean, he ends up getting overshadowed by what happens next. But like, I couldn't help but think of um, there's like when Chris Rock does one of his stand-up routines. There's a line where he's like. Grand opening, grand closing. And that's what that reminded me of with the Mauler, because it's like, yep, he gets one match and he is done. That is it. You know, Mike Enos, obviously, the, car- the the real guy, is still in WCW well into 1999, which is almost unfathomable that he had a job that long. But the actual Mauler character is pretty much just one and done. Like, this is it. Yeah, um, and I'm not too disappointed by that. I can't say the <laughs> idea of a, of a Beverly brother with a haircut and some chaps really got me too excited. Yeah, no, no, no. But what what I didn't remember, though, was I I never actually remembered, like, in my recollection, uh, the interruption that takes place happened before the match even started. But they, these guys actually do end up having, like, a, a match for about probably around five minutes before we get that interruption, which, in my memory, there was, you know, the match never even took place. So, yeah. So, the match, although we don't... You- you know, your memory's not too far off because we don't get a whole lot of it. Um, but we get a an overhead belly-to-belly suplex from the Mauler and then a second rope SOS, um, the old sack of shit overhead slam while the crowd um, chant Beverly at him, which I found quite funny. Oh, I didn't notice that. 
Yeah. Um, they both end up taking a tackle over the, the ropes to the outside and they brawl along the outside. Um, I find it really sort of weird watching one of the Beverly brothers be treated as a power wrestler um, because they're essentially yeah. selling that he's a big, strong, tough guy. But no, these, this was one of the Beverly brothers. They were little pansies in the WWF not long ago. I know, right? The guy who was managed by the genius. So, <laughs> And um, they tell us that uh, Steve Dole was in the Cruiserweight tournament. My note just says, no fucking way, he's huge. <laughs> yeah. That's like the, the WWF light heavyweight division where you had Brian Christopher in it. It was like 250 pounds. Yeah, it's insane. Um, and they actually go to a commercial break during the match, which shows it was a bit longer than we all remembered it. Um, yeah. But when we come back from the commercial break, it's not long for this world because it's time for the big moment we've all been waiting for. Um, it's the man committing denim on denim crime coming through the crowd <laughs> to interrupt and shake things up. Yeah, it's uh, he is from America, but he's wearing a Canadian tuxedo, so... <laughs> Um, and still sporting that Cuban accent. So this is the famous moment. Obviously, I'm not going to try and recite this word for word. I'm going to splice it in right here. Welcome back live to the first hour of this edition of WCW Monday Nitro on TNT. Tony Schiavone and Larry Zabisco. And we are taking a look at the mauler completely maul his opponent Steve Dahl. Well, you know, Steve, Steve Dahl was trying to get an offensive going. Wait a minute. But, but what the hell but is going what? on here? But the maul, well, he just got reversed right there. The mauler runs him down. What are you talking about? Look, look here. Well, What's what the hell? Wait a minute. Give me a mic. Give me a mic. What's with this? Wait, wait, we need security here. Hi. Oh, we I have no idea. Wait a minute. I can't believe it. I can't believe what I'm seeing. You people. What's with him? You know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. Are we going to get security here? Where is billionaire Ted? Where is the nacho man? That punk can't even get in the building. Me, I go wherever I want, whenever I want. And where, oh where, is Scheme Gene? Cause I got a scoop for you. When that Ken doll look-alike, when that weatherman wannabe comes out here later tonight, I got a challenge for him, for billionaire Ted, for the nacho man, and for anybody else in uh, WCW. <laughs> Hey, you want to go to war? You want a war? You're going to get one. But it is Scott Hall coming down to the ring 
picks up the mic. Everybody just stops what they're doing in total shock, which was the right way to sell this. Yep. And he cuts a cuts a promo and tells us he's going to be back later on to take care of some business and specifically refers to that Ken doll wannabe Eric Bischoff. And this is a moment that changed wrestling forever. So what are your first thoughts on this, Henry? So my first thoughts here, uh, I wasn't watching, you know, live on Nitro, but I obviously heard what happened afterwards um, that night because it was just such a mindfuck to have. Again, as I said, Razor Ramon, my all-time, you know, favorite character in the WWF up to that point. Now, obviously, you know, we don't even know what his name is. He's now in WCW. And just his first, some of his first words where he says, you people, you know who I am but you don't know why I'm here. Already, I'm like, take my money, please, because it's just like, he's coming out there and he's saying, yeah, I'm here, but I'm not just here, you know, debuting, having a match. I've got plans. There's some shit that's going to go down. And they, they do, with this angle, an absolutely brilliant job over the coming weeks of slow playing it. They're not rushing it. They're letting the angle play out to the point where, like, every week you're like, holy shit, what the hell is going to happen? And... Just like you said, where he interrupts the match and the guys, they make it, they kind of play it off like it's a shoot because the two guys just leave the ring. They're like, well, what the, what the hell's happening here? And it's just, it's a brilliant way of doing it. He comes in, he references. It's a very sly way of hinting that he's still working for the WWF because he's still using the Cuban accent, like you said. And what does he do? He references Billionaire Ted, the Nacho Man, and Scheme Gene, which is the exact verbiage from those WWF vignettes they were doing, the Billionaire Ted vignettes, obviously. So he's coming in and, and you know, making fun of WCW and... Presumably, I mean, there's no, as much as WCW tries to deny it later when they get sued over this, um, they they basically are like, no, we weren't trying to say he was with the WWF, you know, he was just kind of, you know, coming in, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But it's very obvious that that's what they're trying to tease is that, you know, Razor Ramon is essentially invading WCW. Oh, 100%. So. And um, I thought it was actually genius the way he used those um, those character names because what's the WWF going to say? You can't use Scheme Gene and Nacho Man. That was us making fun <laughs> of you. We've got, we've got rights to that. <laughs> yeah, no fair, no fair. <laughs> but yeah, the, the actually, also what you mentioned about him, this was something I didn't remember about the promo was when he said, um, as you mentioned, that he was going to come back later in the show. Because when you watch these, um, like these recaps on the WWE Network, you know, like the Monday Night War shows, they kind of, the way they play it up on those shows is like, it came across as a shoot. It wasn't just a wrestling angle. But then when you actually like see the actual promo where he's like, I'll be back out later tonight. You're like, okay, well now it kind of does make it seem like more of a wrestling angle. And maybe they, you know, downplay that in the coming weeks, but uh, just have him come out and grab a mic and be like, I'm coming back later. It doesn't come across as a shoot of a guy, um, you know, who just grabs a mic. It comes across as like as much more of a wrestling angle. I thought in that regard, because like, if it was a shoot, he wouldn't be saying, you know, I'm coming back. He'd probably be like, you know, running away because security would be on his ass right so um, that's just one thing i i noted was like you know the way the wwe plays this off now is like oh it was you know people didn't know if it was real or not but if you watch it it's kind of it's kind of obvious what they're doing but uh, again it doesn't make it any less effective because it's still you know an amazing moment one of the most probably i, I think you could say one of the most iconic moments in wrestling history based on what it touches off i agree yeah yeah i, so. I think they um they they definitely throughout the show, you know, sort of cut some of the the shoot style. Um, like I don't know what the best way to phrase this is, but they certainly you're right. They make it appear to be more of a wrestling angle than what they did 
previously. And I think on all those clip shows, the, the, the general idea you led to believe is that he showed up, cut this promo left, came back with Kevin Nash a week or two later and set things off. But yeah, there's certainly a bit more mileage in it than, than they do show in the highlight packages. You're right. Right. And also, obviously, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this as the night goes on. The fact that, you know, when Bischoff actually does come on commentary, that where he's kind of at first being like, I'm not even going to dignify what happened. And then all throughout the night, he's basically like, all right, we'll let him speak at the end of the night. We'll let him speak at the end of the night. We'll let him speak at the end of the night. Like throughout the entire broadcast, Bischoff is basically like, hey, don't touch that dial because he's going to be coming back out. So. I've, got, I've got a note later on that says, Eric Bischoff refuses to acknowledge Scott Hall for the sixth time on the broadcast. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It, it, that's that's not even an exaggeration either. He does that like every single segment. He's like, we're not going to, we're not even going to acknowledge what happened. It's like, well, then what, what are you doing right now? What are you doing at this very moment? I'm, so. I'm bringing it up and letting you know he'll be back, but we're not acknowledging it. Right, exactly. <laughs> we're not going to give him the decency of even acknowledging what happened, but we will give him a forum to speak at the end of the show. So how do we follow up one of the most memorable segments in wrestling history? We yeah. get to Craig the Pit, um, Sergeant Craig the Pitbull Pitman taking on DDP, and the Pitbull is out with his fairly new manager, Teddy Long, player. Yeah, I couldn't help but notice. I, again, this is another thing I didn't remember. I didn't remember Teddy Long being you know, a much larger individual because he's always kind of like a very scrawny guy in the WWF, but he's, uh, he's you know, packing on some pounds here in this, uh, at this point in time. Yeah, it looks like Teddy Long ate Teddy Long before this segment. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, the match gets started with some a, a, a little bit of a funny spot where DDP and the Pitbull exchange push-ups trying to sort of outman each other. And um, Pitman goes into one-arm push-ups and then DDP swings a punt at him but misses, which I thought was quite funny. I, I made a note of that too. I loved that spot. The people uh, ragdolls DDP around the ring before DDP gets an eye rake. They brawl around the outside, and Pittman hits a code red, but DDP grabs a hold of Teddy Long and shoves him to the rail from inside. Uh, well, DDP's inside the ring. Long's obviously on the outside. Uh, Pittman um, then goes after DDP, but DDP, as was his style at the time, turns a random move into the diamond cutter and picks up the one two three so i know i spoke on the last raw and nitro i did about them sort of cutting the legs out of the pay-per-view victory of ddp but you could definitely tell he's on the upward trajectory here and um picking up wins over sort of mid-card guys regularly on nitro is definitely a step in the right direction for what will become a, a proper main event character pretty soon yeah, and actually, I'm glad you mentioned him taking the Code Red Armbreaker because that actually led to a spot after the match that I thought was really funny. Was uh, so he takes the Armbreaker. Obviously, he escapes. Uh, you know, after the match, he DDP wins, and after the match, he does that sort of thing where he gives himself, you know, the quote unquote self high five. And what does he do when he gives himself the self high five? He sells the arm because he was put in the Armbreaker. So it was just one of those things where I was like, you know, that's just a nice little touch there that DDP does that you know kind of sets him apart from other people. Like, you know, somebody else might not go that extra effort to like, you know, uh, even kind of like put the guy's move over after the match, even though he lost. But I I just really appreciated that nice little touch there where he's like, self high five. Oh, ow, my arm, my arm. I I hurt my arm. Um, I definitely like that. Yeah. I I don't know if you listen to Eric Bischoff's podcast at all, um, but uh, talking about DDP on a, a past episode, he talked about how DDP had so many gimmicks that he had to be stripped back of them. And it's this time period here where I see what he was talking about because DDP during his entrance comes out wearing sunglasses, heavily chewing on gum, smoking a cigar, doing the diamond cutter sign and the self high five. And I'm like, oh. and in bright tights, I'm like, yeah, I can see what Bischoff meant there. He definitely needed to dial it back a little bit. Oh, was he chewing gum and smoking a cigar too? 
Yeah, at the same time. <laughs> wow, that's uh, that's got to be gross. <laughs> I would imagine so. After that, we go into a video package of the Macho Man and his um, crazy self lately. But the volume on mine dropped really low and it was hard to make out the words on it. So I found this to be a bit of a miss. Did you notice that or was it just me? Um, I, I didn't remember hearing any audio difficulties on mine. What jumped out to me was when Scott Hall comes in, well, when, sorry, when the Mystery Man, when Razor Ramon comes in during the uh, during his promo, and he, he references, you know, the Nacho Man. He says, that punk can't even get in the building. I was like, what? What? What is that in reference to? And we kind of get the montage here where you see exactly what that is in reference to because apparently he's been banned from the arenas for like beating up WCW referees and personnel. So it's like, oh, okay, now now I kind of see what that was in reference to. Yeah, definitely. He's been barred for a little while now, but continues to travel with them on the road and stand outside. So it's a real, he's a real trooper. Yeah. Um, from there, we go to another commercial, and when we come back, Mean Gene is with the Shark. Um, not one of the best John Tenter promos. I remember his Earthquake promos quite fondly, um, but he just talks about how Kevin Sullivan tossed him out of the Dungeon of Doom, so he's going to win the World Heavyweight Championship to get them back, and that he's upset with Jimmy Hart for not looking after him as well. And my notes here say, you've got a short memory, pal. Do you not remember when he screwed you and old Typhoon out of your title shot? With my <laughs> wow, that's that's a good pull. That's a good pull. <laughs> After that, we go to a video package on Hulk Hogan and all his celebrity friends. So, a bit of a PR campaign here to try and get everyone behind the Hulkster again, although that won't last for too long. But it shows him hanging out with such big names as George Foreman, Shaquille O'Neal, Dennis Rodman, and Kevin Green. Yeah, I wonder if we'll ever see Dennis Rodman again, huh? <laughs> I wonder if um, he'll still be friendly with Hulk when Hulk turns to the dark side. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder. We go to the start of the second hour, which brings back Eric Eric Bischoff and Bobby the Brain on commentary, and they also don't take up the new announce spot. They're in their classic announce spot, so that was interesting, having two separate announce tables as well. I guess it's a way for them, if they're live, to not have to transition in and out and be awkward and clunky during the broadcast, but it was definitely yeah. different. Yeah, and you'll have to let me know if you saw this, by the way. So when hour number two begins, uh, so to, obviously to commemorate hour number two, they light off some pyro on the stage. Now, Lee, I don't know if you saw this, but the camera guy clearly gets way too close to the pyro. I don't know if he was expecting it. So you see a shot of like the camera guy getting way too close and like the flames shoot up right into the screen. And then you just see the camera like back all the way down the aisle. <laughs> like the camera guy's like, oh shit, I almost caught myself on fire. I have to back up here. So, no, I never noticed. That's brilliant. I'll have to yeah. for that. <laughs> Go back and watch that because I'm pretty sure the camera guy was not expecting the pyro and almost got su- got set on fire. <laughs> that is funny. Um, not funny. Uh, funny that he nearly got set on fire. Obviously, I didn't want him to be set on fire. Don't take that the wrong <laughs> way. <laughs> he, he avoided tragedy, so it's okay. Yeah, I, if I look, if I nearly got killed, I'd laugh. If I got killed, I probably wouldn't. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Um, and as we talked about a little bit already, Bischoff tells us he's not going to respond to Scott Hall. So I'm looking forward to him leaving that well enough alone and moving on with our lives. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and it's time for our big title match. So the start of the second hour is the Shark taking on the Giant in a big heavyweights in Dungeon of Doom Explode. And they're selling that the Shark weighs more than the Giant. So I don't know if they've ever... Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't think they've had their weights be announced in like with the Shark as heavier previously. I think this is just something to try and, you know raise the stakes a little bit here and I don't think it's anything that they carry on with afterwards but the Giant's certainly in good shape yeah and I even with Giant being in good shape I feel like he probably still weighs more than the Shark but maybe not I don't know yeah I, I'm kind of with you on that but I'll take it at face value for the sake of the match yeah did you notice also the Shark was billed as being from 
tsunami. Yeah. It wasn't like it wasn't like the tsunami or any tsunami in particular. It was just he's from tsunami, which I guess if it was like a tsunami full of sharks, that'd be like the precursor to a sharknado. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Way oh, ahead man. of the curve. Yeah, I know. If only it was WWE Studios and whatnot back then, he could have been involved in that for sure. That, you know, honestly, the the production values of those movies kind of do make them look like they're on par with WWE Studios. So, yeah, that would make sense. In the early portion of the match, the giant no-sells a shoulder and a clothesline, and then clotheslines the shark down. Um, the shark hits a second rope axe handle and then tries a slam but doesn't get it, and the giant pulls off the slam. So that kind of undoes the whole um, one is far outweighing the other when we've got the um, the giant is too big to slam, but he slams the shark with ease. It kind of went against what they were trying to sell there a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, There was a nice pop when giant ended up slamming shark. Like, the crowd was actually pretty impressed by it, it seemed. Yeah. And we get an eye rake by shark and a second rope clothesline. Jimmy Hart distracts the referee, and the giant hits his classic showstopper-type choke slam for the one, two, three. And then we get Big Bubba Rogers, a.k.a. the Big Boss Man, come out and cut the shark... Uh, not, yeah, sorry, cut the shark's hair in what is blatant gimmick infringement. I know they're struggling to give the <laughs> names to these guys, Brutus Beefcake and the Big Boss Man, but I don't think just swapping their characters around is going to work either, guys. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I actually had to make a note of this, too. Like, I had to go back and check with, you know, essentially the big boss man cutting Earthquake's hair. I had to go back and check, like, did we ever get a boss man versus Earthquake match in the WWF? And as it turns out, we did. We got only three televised matches between them. And funny enough, one of them was at the 1990 Survivor Series Showdown. The other one was at the 1991 Survivor Series Showdown. So apparently they just trotted those guys out annually around Survivor Series time. And then the third one was at an event called Battle Royal at the Albert Hall, which actually is now on the WWE Network. So those are the three televised Earthquake Big Boss Man matches in WWF for those scoring at home. Uh, if you want to go check those out, which I actually might end up doing at some point. Um, but and don't also, forget as well, um, Boss Man was the special guest referee for Earthquake and Hogan's big grudge match at SummerSlam 90. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, that's that's a good poll, actually. I remember that one because that was... Um, uh, like there's, I think there's a point where Earthquake is putting Hulk Hogan in a bear hug and he won't let go. So Boss Man starts like, wearing out Earthquake's back with a chair and, oh, that's brutal. Yeah, and like by the end of the match, you just see there are like welts all over Earthquake's back. It's pretty, pretty brutal. So yeah, there's so there is a little bit of history here going in, it would seem. But uh, I will say, I feel like Big Bubba did Shark a favor here by shaving his head because it, it probably actually <laughs> it'll look a little better than that horseshoe thing he has going on. I feel like, right? Yeah, he's um, he's certainly not rocking the. Uh, the fashion of the 90s at the time right here the old shark and um i did this was the first time i ever really noticed as well the horrible job they did of giving him a shark tattoo over his arm oh tight tiger from his college so that was that was brutal i felt so bad about that the fact that he actually got his tiger tattoo changed to a shark tattoo for what amounts to basically like you know not not even a year of the gimmick in wcw and you know it must be a bad tattoo if i'm ragging on it because i've got a ninja turtle on my arm Ah, oh, hey, there's there's nothing wrong with that. Well, wait, which which Ninja Turtle is it? Leonardo. There you go. That was actually was always my favorite too. Actually, <laughs> I like the uh, I like the color blue as a kid, so he was always my favorite. He, that's that's my reasoning. Ah, <laughs> oh, there you go. Exactly. And his weapon was pretty good. I think he had the swords, right? So those are those are pretty yeah. good. Oh, definitely. It's, it's not a, it's not a crappy little stick, is it? Or a couple of oversized forks. 
Yeah. Yeah, take that, other Ninja Turtles. <laughs> Moving right along, we go to our next matchup, which is Max taking on Lex Luger. And yes, I also asked who the fuck Max is. I have no <laughs> yeah. idea. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is the guy who was Max Muscle, who was like DDP's bodyguard for a little bit. I think it's the same guy. Yeah, he's pretty huge. To me, he just looks like the love child of Mike Awesome and Luther Reigns. (laughs) Oh, wow. There you go. There's a good poll for you. (laughs) Not even Roman Reigns, but Luther Reigns. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it might have been the old um, shark's horseshoe haircut that made me think of that. Yeah, there you go. I also could help but think like, yeah, if you even if he was Max Muscle before, now you're just calling him Max. Like you're you're making him less interesting as he goes along. You know, it's like <laughs> Max with two X's. Wow, I can't wait to tune in to see what Max does. It's like it's so bland. It was quite jarring, wasn't it, that the first episode of Nitro to go two hours had Max, Steve Dole, and the Mauler all on, and it's like, right, did you guys expand before you had the guy, the the crew ready to do it. Right, yeah. <laughs> roster, the roster needs to be bumped up a little bit, I think. Which I'm guessing it will be pretty soon. Yes, yes. And on the note of Max, it basically, like, he has kind of... His haircut is kind of like Road Warrior Animals, like, shaved mullet. And at the start of the match, Bischoff says, Nice haircut, Max. And then Bobby Heenan retorts by saying, Yeah, if you're going to the chair... So, again, first thing I wrote was, like, right off the bat, Bobby Heenan gives me just, like, so much enjoyment on commentary as soon as he takes over. Uh, Imagine a few drinks and us just sitting around with Bobby Heenan making fun of Max. That could go for a while. Yeah, and rightfully so. Yeah. Luger is, of course, defending his television championship. Um, The match gets started with a big shoulder block from Max before Lex comes back with a couple of clotheslines. Max goes for a power slam, and Bischoff off camera and you can't see obviously because this is a podcast but i'm doing the little quotation marks because it's um or off commentary he's saying to a guy yeah yeah he can um he can come out at the end of the hour that'll do if he wants to talk we'll bring him out then you know so it's obviously over the microphone but it's not spoken to uh, to us the viewers so a a little bit more of bischoff not responding is going on here yeah yeah he's talking to some random guy off off stage i guess but uh, I, I will say that actually made it a bit of a nice touch where it kind of it made it seem like they were just picking something up as opposed to like, you know, it, I like that sort of touch more than Bischoff, you know, telling us outright, I'm not going to acknowledge it. But like a touch like that where he's like, OK, yeah, fine, we'll, we'll give him some time. We'll get like that. That I think is is a little bit more acceptable than, you know, saying you're not going to dignify something with a response and then dignifying it about 75 times by the end of the show. So I liked that little creative flourish a little bit more than uh, than those other moments, I guess you could say. Yeah, my note here at this point, as I'm obviously writing during the show, says really good build. So at this point, they've done everything correctly. Um, it just, you know, they just overkill it a little bit. So we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, no. actually, on, on the note of uh, overkill, can I just mention really quick Luger's selling? Um, I, I know, <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of people point this out, but it, it's hard not to notice it. Like now, when you watch a Luger match, because he's not just like yelling loudly when he takes a bump; he's also yelling like when he causes other people to bump. Like he hits a clothesline, and he's yelling when he hits the clothesline. It's it's really distracting, and I I can't imagine. You know, I don't think he was doing this from day one, but I'd love to know who got in his head at some point and told him, like, that's what you got to do. You got to yell every time you're in the ring, like yell just at completely full throat every single time. I'm sure I've reviewed an older, maybe even pre-WCW NWA show where he's in the cage with someone screaming. I'm certain of it. So it's definitely something he's he's had in his repertoire for a while. I don't think he did it much in the WWF. Although that being said, I think... Um, I want to say maybe his King of the Ring match with um, Tatanka 
he had a lot of the yelling going on. Maybe as a heel, he doesn't. And as a face, he doesn't. I don't know. It's funny you mention that because I actually did go back and check, like, um, because he was basically doing it from day one in WCW. So I was like, now, was this something he was doing in WWF? So I actually like went back and watched, like, what, whatever his last pay-per-view match in the WWF was. And I noticed that he was doing it, but you have to, like, really look for it because the way the WWF's rings were mic'd is you can't really hear the guys very much in the ring. So you can see, you can kind of, like, see and faintly hear him doing it, but it's like you can barely pick it up over the commentary team. So that, that was just, sense. yes, that was just one of the things I noticed was like, you wouldn't, the way I guess the, they mic the ring in WWF, you'd never notice he was doing it. If you were there in person, I'm sure it'd be distracting as hell, but uh, but you can't actually hear it in those WWF matches because they do a good job, you know, kind of uh, hiding that from the audience. Fair enough. Back in the ring, yeah. Max hits, hits an elbow for a two and a clothesline for a two before Lex comes out with his deadly forearm and then a power slam and puts Big Max up into the torture rack in a very impressive spot to pick up the submission victory. Yeah. Oh, one other thing I note from, noted from here too was like um, Luger hits Max with a forearm and Bischoff at one point says, that loaded forearm that has defeated so many people, including Yokozuna. Yeah. So I was, yeah, I was like, what the hell? Like, Bischoff is openly acknowledging storylines from the WWF. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, from there, Gene comes out and chats about Lex Luger being chokeslammed through the table, um, which happened on a recent episode of Nitro. The Giant put him through mm. Ric Flair's VIP table. And um, that's the sort of storyline point here as Luger cuts a promo with Gene. Pretty, I actually don't mind Lex's promos around this time, and he's always advancing the story. So, yeah, I'm a bit of a Lex Luger fan in this period. Yeah, that was good. And I, I, the other thing I noted was when he's doing the promo there, they they do cut back to that moment where he takes the bump uh, through the table. And it looked incredibly painful because when he goes through that table, it's kind of like in the aisle way. So when the table breaks, it's literally just concrete underneath. So it kind of looks like Lex just like, you know, the table parts and he just lands back first right on the concrete. So I was like, wow, that was that looked pretty painful there. He's hardcore. Of course he is, yeah. <laughs> and then we go to another match, which um, suggests that we might be right about them expanding a little bit earlier. <laughs> yeah. um, hard work Bobby Walker taking on Brad Armstrong in another moment where I went, who is this guy? And we're told this is the worst nickname ever. Um, we're told he picked up the nickname Hard Work Bobby Walker because he was the hardest working guy in the power plant. Oh my God. Gold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, what what jumped out at me when I saw this was the matchup, I was like, okay, so we have one of the guys who would later sue WCW for racial discrimination versus the guy who used to be Arachna Man. So strong stuff here. Strong stuff. <laughs> um, Bischoff once again doesn't dignify Scott Hall with a response this is the, the part of my notes where I went this is getting a bit old now yes um, yeah Bobby Walker gets an arm drag um, Strong comes back with a monkey flip um, Walker tries to land on his feet but then stumbles and springs but manages to hit a crossbody he, he goes for oh. basically to land on his feet roll through hit a springboard crossbody but it's not very pretty but it worked no pain it was, he botched I think three or four spots here yeah um, he locks on a head scissors and then a small package for a two, a backslide for a two, and a backdrop. But then he massively fucks up, jumping from the second rope, and the crowd laugh at him. Uh, yes! Off the top with some sort of blockbuster for the three and an upset. But yeah, you couldn't get over the crowd. Just like you could hear them just crack up. Yes, that was what I was thinking too. I was like, if this is the hardest working guy at the power plant, that does not bode well for future call-ups to the main roster because, yeah, like you said, so he botches the monkey flip. He was trying to land on his feet, but he kind of fell. Then at another point, he runs up 
Uh, I think it's basically from that he runs toward the corner and jumps the top rope where he slips and kind of has to catch himself so he doesn't fall to the floor. Then toward the end of the match, he climbs the second rope and tries to jump up to the top turnbuckle and slips and basically crotches himself on the top rope. And that's the point where the crowd starts laughing at him. And I'm pretty sure you can actually hear him yell, fuck, if you have your headphones on, which is awesome. And then the end, even that buff blockbuster, I thought kind of looked slightly botched as well. So it's like he's just, you know, running through all these spots he wants to check off and he's just like not hitting any of them. It was kind of like painful to watch and then when the crowd like you said literally you can hear the crowd audibly laugh at him i was just like oh man this is this is just painful right here as far as debuts go this one's right up there with one of the worst yeah seriously not nearly as good of a debut as we had earlier tonight uh with a certain someone grabbing the microphone that's for sure probably not even as good a debut as the mauler had quite frankly (laughs) yeah that's fair the mauler did everything he was supposed to do and got out of there so you know exactly his was a solid c plus this one was um yeah a for effort but execution was definitely the e yeah, yeah. Well, that would that would make sense if you're on your report card. It would be Bobby Walker's report card would say hard worker, but needs improvement. Clearly, <laughs> needs a lot of improvement. And Brad Armstrong, after the match, is visibly upset. They sell it that he's upset about um, getting beat by the newcomer, but I'm sure he's just upset that he had to be at the losing end of this shit match. <laughs> yeah, I thought so too. That was probably a shoot, right? <laughs> he's probably like, oh god, I had to just lose cleanly to this guy who's just clearly not ready for it. Yeah, I'm now going to be a footnote in wrestling history. Who's a po- who was the opponent for the man with the most botches in their debut? Yeah, I'm going to go call my brother the Road Dog and see if they have any openings over in the WWF. <laughs> <laughs> he does, however, give a handshake to Bobby Walker and they go to a commercial. And thankfully, this segment is over. When we come back, it's time for a bit of a clash in styles, but a completely um, different prospect to this one. It's Steve Regal taking on Alex Wright. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, well, right off the bat, I want to point out the fact that, like, Alex Wright, just before the match even starts, Alex Wright makes Bobby Walker look like a, like a complete asshole, because he just, he, right, he comes up, this is before the match even starts, he go, he's on the ring apron, he jumps to the top rope, and then easily does a backflip and lands on his feet in the ring, so I, I like, in my head, as he was doing that, I'm, I'm like, picturing Alex Wright saying, like, you know, see, it's just that easy, hard work, or something like that, you know, like, <laughs> like, just made him look like a complete asshole with one spot before the match so yeah i was just like man that that's such a contrast of like alex wright who's probably like 19 years old at this point being so far ahead of him yeah I've, that bobby walker just reminded me of someone watching a ray mysterio match and going i could do all that and yeah not being able to do all that yeah bobby bobby walker was like somebody the first time they've ever been in a wrestling ring like oh i'm, I'm gonna run to the top rope and i'm gonna you know like jump around and, and probably if it was your first time you'd probably fall on your ass too just like he did so yeah, it was uh, not great stuff there, but th- this match, thankfully, was much better, in my opinion. Yeah, um, it starts off with the hilarious spot of Regal doing the um, the old push your bicep up with your finger to make you look like you've got big yeah. arms and you've got... Yes. We've seen a few times now, but it always cracks me up. Awesome. Uh, we got some chain wrestling and a half head a half Enziguri, sort of like a... Like it looked like an Enziguri, but he flipped over with Regal, which was a pretty cool spot. I'm not sure how realistic it is, but it looked cool. And then a plancher before we go to a commercial break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Before, we've been talking about debuts on this show, and one that really ends up being quite the letdown, but has been hyped for weeks and weeks, we get the, another video package for Glacier. Oh, God, yeah. And then after that, my next note just says, Bischoff, please shut up about Scott Hall. You're ruining this for me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, if I could touch on Glacier for just one moment, actually. And it it ties directly into Scott Hall because it's like you want to talk about, 
you know, bad timing. This is probably, you know, for Glacier, if they had debuted this character, you know, six months prior in a different WCW, in a Dungeon of Doom WCW, that character would be, you know, perfectly fine. It's a Mortal Kombat ripoff, etc., etc. But, like, when you're trying to debut Glacier in the midst of this, you know, complete change where now Scott Hall is coming in, some other guys coming in as well, and they're shifting toward a more realistic product, it's just you know, terrible timing, and ultimately, you know, it's the reason why I'm assuming, spoiler alert, that Glacier's debut ends up being pushed off uh, quite a ways down the road, as opposed to, you know, uh, it's definitely not here in May. It's it's much later than May. So, yeah, it's a uh, very unfortunate timing for Glacier, I have to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, back in the ring, we get some uh, double knees from Regal, a headbutt, an elbow, and a European uppercut, before Alex Wright comes back with a huge European uppercut of his own. Makes sense. They're both European. Um, yeah, true. We get a roll up for a two count, and Regal on camera whilst wrestling Alex Wright uh, on the mat says, "Any other, anyone from any other companies that want to come in here and take food from me, no bloody chance." Which I guess awesome. is like also, you know, selling the whole WWF or invading thing here, and that was a good subtle way to keep the momentum of it going, which didn't need it being rammed down our throats. I really liked that. Yeah, I put that too, because he actually says something about, like, people from, he's, I think he says, like, other bloody wrestling companies. So even, like, while the match is going on, he's he's saying, you know, somebody else from another company is coming in here, which, again, puts over exactly what they were trying to do, that, you know, this guy's invading from the WWF. So, like, I, I've thought, like, you know, leave it to Regal to be, like, awesome enough to actually put over an angle while he's wrestling somebody. You know, he's got him in a submission move. He has Alex Wright in a submission move, and he's putting over, you know, the main angle on the show, which I just, you know, just just one of those nice little touches that uh, really adds to the, the overall presentation, I would say. 100%. Back in the ring, we get a drop kick and a leg lariat from Wright for a two count. Regal blocks a monkey flip and rolls over it to a one, two, three, picks up the victory. So if you're going to have him sort of challenging the, the invading faction, you can't then have him lose. This brings uh-huh. out Mean Gene Oakland, and I'm going to splice some of this in, but this promo here, if what he said on the camera earlier was brilliant, this was slightly less than brilliant. <laughs> yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> you almost had it. Let's go now to Mean Gene Okerlund. Thank you, Eric. Uh, with me, Lord Stephen Regal. Most impressive, I must say, against this youngster, just barely 20 years old. But uh, the one thing that the fans bring out to me as I travel around the country, Lord Stephen Regal, is the way you feel about Americans. Uh, apparently, uh, you, you have some adverse feelings toward us. Listen to me, you miserable little toad. You telling me how to act my life. It's like Quasimodo telling somebody how to bloody walk straight. Let me point out. Now I have your attention. It's Memorial Day. My father will be so pleased I beat Junior Adolf there. We have got a world champion here in WCW that's a bloody escapee from Barnum and Bailey's. We've got bloody Savage running around thinking he's some kind of hard man. If you didn't notice, two weeks ago, I put the toughest man in wrestling out of the bloody game. Then, we've got somebody from another wrestling organization wanting to take on war. Don't forget who's in within Sunshine, because I'm going nowhere, and it's time I had my bloody say in what goes on around here. You know, I should point out, just for the record, uh, the affection that these fans have for you. I couldn't help but notice the one youngster here giving you half a peace sign. I don't think they think that highly of your personality. 
your wrestling skills notwithstanding. When you are a significant grappler as myself, you are not bothered by such meager peasants. And that means you, Sunshine. Now, to prove myself, I am going to make a statement, a challenge if you wish, to the man they call the franchise. If I beat this man and you, Mr. Sting, I hope you're listening, I will then be held within some esteem here well. and maybe get a shot at this bloody circus freak that we have as a champion. I want that painted face bloody clown. Please. Right in this Thank you very much. Possible. Take it to the championship committee, please. I can't stand the heat. Eric, let's get back to you. He refers to Alex Wright as a junior Adolf, <laughs> which, granted, it cracked me up, but it's certainly not politically correct. <laughs> yes, not not at all. <laughs> it's awesome. He, he challenges Sting. Um, he call, I think he calls him that face-painted clown or something. I'm going to splice it in anyway. But, um, yeah, just um, talk about a roller coaster of emotions when Regal talks. That was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And again, he does also in the promo, he references someone from another wrestling organization. So yeah, he's, he's still going with it. He's still putting it over. Yeah, definitely. Regal, Regal's a gem. Um, I absolutely adore Regal. So not just because he's a fellow Englishman either. He's just, he's just brilliant. Um, everything he does makes sense. And that's something that I think really sits well with me in any wrestler. As long as what they do makes sense, I, I'm generally okay with it. Yeah. And I think also Regal is a good case of somebody who, you know, at the time, uh, his style was a little bit different than I think what a lot of people are used to that um, sort of like, you know, slow down, mat-based submissions, etc., etc. Stuff that looks, uh, you know, more painful but might not look as, you know, pleasing to the eye as a lot of wrestling holds do. But if you go back, it's like he's a guy who I think ages a lot better with time because, um, you know, when when you watch the matches in 96, 97, like a lot, a lot of the times it's, it's not silence, but it seems like the crowd's not totally invested in what they're seeing with his style. But, I mean, you know, nowadays the guy's looked about on, you know, WWE as a god, and rightfully so, because, you know, he's he's just, you know, pretty much anything you want him to do, he can do it for you. He does comedy, he does, you know, dramatic angles really well. Uh, everything he does is just, just awesome. So, yeah, uh, again, underappreciated in his time, but I think, you know, has aged, has aged beautifully. His, his stuff really has, you know, done... Uh, it, it's gone the opposite direction of a lot of things where some stuff you look back on and you're like, oh, that doesn't age well, whereas Regal's, I think, is is the opposite of that, so... Agreed. Um, from there, we go to a commercial, and when we come back, it's time for our main event. It's Sting taking on Scott Steiner, and during the entrances, you can't help but notice Scott Steiner is definitely morphing into Big Papa Pump, right? <laughs> yes. Still, he's still somewhat mobile, though, at least at this point. Definitely. When the match gets started, we get an arm drag from Steiner and a hip toss. Um, Bobby Heenan cracks me up on commentary where he says that this isn't going to work for Steiner because he's only got half a mind because both the Steiner brothers are half-wits. Yeah, true, true. Bischoff then fires back with, you watch it, Rick's going to be out here soon. And Heenan goes, who, my buddy, one of the greatest athletes of all time. Yeah, right, yes. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Sting with a drop kick and a clothesline and a plancher. Steiner with an awesome double underhook suplex and a belly-to-belly. And then comes off the top rope with a double axe handle to Sting on the arena floor. Just brilliant. Yeah. Sting Crazy stuff. Back. Yeah, definitely. Like, way more. Um, you, you're right. He's mobile. So, that was cool. Yeah, well, don't get used to it. <laughs> Sting with a big boot and a, um overhead belly-to-belly from Steiner. We get an STF from Steiner and a slam. Sting comes back with a Stinger splash, but misses the second attempt at it. Steiner hits a nice drag and suplex, and then Lex Luger comes out, oh. but he's pretty quickly followed by Rick Steiner. 
Yeah, that dragon suplex looked brutal when he hit that. I, I was like, wow, I'm surprised Sting didn't break his neck on that one because that, that looked painful. But uh, yeah, and then, yeah, like you said, Lex Luger, Lex Luger comes out. Yeah, and um, speaking of trying to break Sting's neck, um, Sting fires back at him and hits a tombstone for a two count. So that was, yeah. that was quite cool as well. Hard hitting. Mm. Lex and Rick brawl around the outside on the floor. Then we get a four-man brawl, a double disqualification, and then we um, basically get all the lower card baby faces running out to break it up. Um, I'm hoping this leads to another big tag match between these two teams. I don't know that to be the case, so um, I'm you know I try not to look too far ahead because I enjoy watching and giving a fair critique of the shows, but I certainly enjoy these four men interacting, even if it wasn't as long as I would have hoped. Yeah, I do the same thing with my show, actually. I try not to look ahead and just kind of like be surprised week to week. Um, one spot I'll note, though, that kind of touched off the ending brawl was like Steiner tries to suplex Sting from the apron into the ring, and Sting reverses it and suplexes Steiner to the floor, but Steiner somehow lands on his feet. So I was I was just like, wow, this, this shows you that this isn't the Scott Steiner we're accustomed to, where, you know, Sting literally suplexes him down to the floor and Steiner lands on his feet, and then that kind of, like, touches off the brawl from there. But I was like, wow, that is that is a crazy spot to be doing right there. All right. Um, and overall, I thought the match was, was actually pretty good before the uh, obvious, you know, the schmoz finish, but um, I, I enjoyed it. Did you enjoy this match? I oh, loved it. Yeah, I absolutely love these guys. I love all four of them in this era. So any combination of these four guys makes me happy and makes me want to watch. Excellent. Yeah, just two absolute powerhouses, basically, you know, but but mobile powerhouses, like I was saying, like this is Scott Steiner before he's fully transitioned into Big Papa Pump and Sting at this point is still jacked to shit, but also, you know, very mobile and can put on a really good match, too. So, yeah, kind of kind of fun to see these guys uh, at this point in time before they obviously both of them pretty soon will be transitioning into completely different characters. So that that'll be fun for you to to see, I'm sure, when they make those transitions. Oh, absolutely. And of course, the reason behind those transitions is what we're going to end the show on here. Um, Scott Hall comes back out and cuts another promo. This is the part that none of the recaps or, you know, documentaries show you. Scott Hall's second appearance on this show. Um, right. He cuts a bit of a promo at Bischoff at the commentary table saying we're, we're sick of it. So the, the we there is definitely heavily implied to be the WWF. Um, he challenges their three best guys. So runs through who Bischoff can pick from it, pick any three. It's very much got a WWF first WCW tone to it when he says we're coming back to take them on. Um, doesn't name who it is that he's going to be bringing with him. And as he cuts his promo and finishes up, the commentary team just look into the camera stunned, don't know what to say, and we end the show on quite a jarring note with what the hell is going on? Are we being invaded? So really, yeah. really cool. I liked this. What did you think? Yeah, it, the one thing, again, like you said, the reason they uh, tend not to uh, give this part as much publicity on those recaps is because, you know, they say, oh, it didn't come across like a wrestling angle, but obviously when he comes out at the end here, he's literally challenging, you know, the WCW guys to a wrestling match. He's saying three of your guys versus three of my guys. Uh, so, I mean, it, it definitely is, you know, played up as a wrestling angle. And again, in, in the coming weeks, they may downplay that in favor of, you know, more realism. Uh, but still, it, 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 very effective overall, too, because you do have that. Like you said, they don't go off the air with any flashy note. It's kind of like Bischoff, and I, I think it's still Heenan there with them, um, just being like, you know, kind of like throwing up their hands, being like, you know, it, we'll see. You. Not, I don't even know if they say we'll see you next week. It just kind of like goes right off the air. So they definitely play it up as like, this is much more of a shoot. This is not something we're used to. This is not, you know, the the trademark Tony Schiavone fans we'll see you next week it's you know it's much more 
um, somber, much more serious, and you know, I, I really, really brilliant stuff, Fan, fantastic stuff, and I think uh, it, it's only going to get better for a little while before it ultimately starts going downhill. But thankfully, these first probably you know six, seven, eight weeks of this are are really, really strong stuff. Obviously, in my opinion, culminating with uh, Bash at the Beach '96 in July, but I'm sure you'll get to that when you get to it. But yeah, great, great start, hugely surprising. And again, this is you know this is one of like. You could probably say, you know, there's there's BC and there's AD when it comes to this angle. You know, this is this is like such a huge change in wrestling. It's it's just you know it's tough to to state how big a change this was because this is what turns WCW from you know kind of like the also ran company to literally the company that's now going to be kicking WWF's ass for the next year and a half. And the only way to do that is you gotta kick people's butts. You gotta make enemies. All right, all right, all right. Hey, looky here. You wanna Kindle, you got such a big mouth. And we, we are sick of it. What do you mean, who's we? You know who. Hey, this is where the big boys play? What a joke. I tell you what. You go tell Billionaire Ted, you tell him, get three of his very, very best. Maybe, uh, maybe the Nacho Man. Oh, no. And maybe, maybe he get the Stinger. Ooh, I'm so scared. You go get anybody you want, because we... What do you mean, we? We are taking over. You want to go to war? You want a war? You got one. Only, only let's do it right. In the ring, where it matters. Not on no microphones. Not in no newspapers or dirt sheets. Let's do it in the ring where it matters. If, uh, if billionaire Ted and his big boys, if they got any, uh, any guts, because we are coming down here. You're stepping over the line. And like it or not, not. we are taking over. You're out of here. One, one of the, as I've said throughout the show, the, the main reason why I wanted to discuss this with you is to see how it sort of ignites and kickstarts what will become known as the Attitude Era. I know this is day one, and certainly it's not the... We've not seen the NWO in, in any form as of yet. But just on this show alone, can you see at least the seeds being planted for where wrestling will change, not just in WCW, but then later on in the WWF as well? Can you Can you see that sort of brimming from what we see here on this first night? 
Yeah, absolutely. Specifically, if you talk about the the Scott Hall promo, because they play it off as they they play it off as a shoot, because the other wrestlers basically get out of the ring and they're just like, "Oh, I don't know what's going on here." And his promo comes across as you know kind of a shoot as well. And obviously, when you know Vince Russo gets those creative reigns in the WWF, those you know worked shoots, those angles that are meant to look like shoots, that's a huge thing for the WWF there. So I mean, you can definitely, uh, I, I guess you could say, see the. Um, the sort of like seeds of that being planted here because I mean obviously this is such a hugely successful angle and they do sort of actually have some more shoot type elements to it as well I know you know one of the things they they mention is a certain wrestler being lawn darted into the side of a trailer and they mention um you know uh the the sort of baseball bat attack that goes on in the in you know a couple weeks from now uh basically things that you don't you weren't really seeing on these you know cartoony wrestling promos programs up to this point where you have the dungeon of doom and wcw and in the wwf you still have characters like you know duke the dumpster drossy running around so it's it's things that are in a completely different ballpark to what we're used to seeing as wrestling fans at this point in time and that's i think also why that scott hall promo stands out so much because it's not like anything else you're seeing on that show or on Raw at the time. It's so completely different that it basically forces you to pay attention to be like, whoa, what the hell is going on here, you know? Yeah, and I think one of the points you touched on briefly there um, with the characters running around, I think the the it's probably a, a happy accident, but the fact that they didn't know what to name these guys at the start and end up going, you know what, well, yeah. we can't get in trouble for their real names. I think that's an often understated um, change in the wrestling business where when they just went with, this is Scott Hall and this is Kevin Nash, a lot of things changed with who we saw coming in and out of both companies and, and what they were called. Um, you're right, you uh, the dumpster is still running around and things like the Godwins and whatnot. But after this sort of made everything seem like, whoa, well, you've got cartoon characters with, you know, a bin man and a, a pig farmer over there. This is real <laughs> guys that are cool as hell. And I think that itself made a big change to wrestling that often sort of doesn't get talked about because this angle was so huge and everything that came from it was so, you know, monumental. I think the fact that even just the, the little name changes made a big difference to what we saw in the realism coming up in the years to come. Yeah, and that, well, actually, you know what? And that's a great tie into what you're actually going to see. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if the WWF considers this an answer to what was going on in WCW. But fast forward a couple weeks to King of the Ring '96, and you get one of the most iconic promos of all time, which stands out in the WWF because it's not the type of promo you were seeing on WWF television at that time. Uh, specifically with you know the profanity which gets used, and I, I won't spoil that because I'm sure you're going to touch on that as well. But yeah, it, it's funny to think of you know. King of the Ring 96, one of the most iconic WWF promos of all time, which kind of ushers in a bit of a sea change for a certain character. And that happens, you know, just weeks before Bash at the Beach 96, where everything completely changes for WCW. So it's just kind of crazy to think that these two companies, this might be the first time where we're actually seeing um, the start of that sort of, you know, punch counterpunch thing with both companies who up to this point were just kind of like, you know, trading ratings victories, but they were kind of, you know, keeping up with their same uh, sort of characters and their same sort of angles. But yeah, the summer of 96, I think you really could say that it's, you know, incredibly pivotal for both companies going forward where, you know, they don't, in the WWF, it obviously doesn't usher in the attitude error right away, but there are those seeds being planted where you can see, you know, something's really happening here, particularly with, with one character in particular in the WWF. So yeah, that's uh, it's kind of crazy to think of like how these two things happen just kind of like mere weeks away from each other. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we can 
all agree that this is sort of the kickstart for real changes on both sides of the divide and there's certainly other landmark moments still to come there's a lot of them you can sort of pull them out and decide what you know what constitutes what i mean obviously um things like the vince mcmahon promo the the screwing of bret hart austin's king mm. of the Ring promo um you know many many moments through 1998 austin winning the belt mike tyson you can sort of pick and choose how much importance each of those steps had but i think this is definitely what i consider the first step for, for either side and it's um the first step on the journey which most of us loved as wrestling fans and that's the best period of wcw obviously um and what i consider the best period of the wwf as well so um bravo wcw for taking the ball and, and changing the game and i'm looking forward to very much watching the next few years on my timeline a lot of these shows i haven't seen like i've seen recaps and pay-per-views but a, a lot of these episodes of tv i've never seen and i when i got the network my first thought was rush ahead and watch all of this but then obviously it wasn't all there at the time and now doing the podcast i think i'm enjoying it more devouring it bit by bit to review because i'm taking a lot more notice and really i've got a, a clear path and watching it so yeah it's it's highly enjoyable for me yeah, it's it's a great time. And actually, well, what we were talking before about the WWF, WWE shaping the narrative is that promo we were, that you mentioned there, the Austin 316 promo. The WWE makes it seem like, you know, he cuts that promo, he's automatically a big deal. Whereas it's like, you know, he cuts he cuts that promo at King of the Ring 96. And what's he doing at SummerSlam? Oh, he's on the pre-show wrestling Yokozuna. Okay, right. Okay. It's like, you know, they, they still had a period where they weren't really doing much with him. But uh, eventually, you know, it comes to the point where, you know, it can't be denied that this is the next guy they need to go with. So, uh, again, I'd just like to point that out when you look at those, you know, instances of the WWE shaping the narrative that it's not always, you know, what they make it to be. uh, D-Generation X riding the quote-unquote tank to WCW was not, uh, you know, the pivotal point in the ratings because, uh, you know, they were already kind of like you know on that path but that's another thing where it's like oh dx invaded wcw and that was the launching point but it's like okay you know let's let's calm down a little bit here right <laughs> yeah that was a um a funny moment and a shot from what was at the time the dominant force that's been played up to be a pivotal turning point but they were well ahead by then it really was in the grand scheme of things it meant nothing other than a funny skit which we all enjoyed watching at the time yeah there you go but uh, but uh, but either way, I mean, this is all. This is a great time frame. I'm actually I'm kind of excited for you to be experiencing a lot of this stuff uh, for the first time. So yeah, it's. I mean, and actually, you know, some of it I have never even experienced because I was like I said, WWF loyalist, kind of like channel surfing. So a lot of these moments on Nitro uh, even are, would even be new to me because I just you know would be watching the WWF for as long as I could until I got that itch where I was just like, ah, maybe I should just, you know, see what's happening over on Nitro for just, you know, a minute, that sort of thing. It's <laughs> it's a commercial. Raw went to a commercial. What's the harm in flipping over to Nitro, right? <laughs> well, that is a great segue because now we're going to decide this is the first night, the one that made a lot of people want to jump ship. Was it enough to be the better show? I think you and I need to put this to the test. Ooh, that's it, it, actually, you know, it's pretty close, I have to say. Because uh, it, it is definitely close. Both shows, for me, the Goldust Warrior thing, as I said, was like a bit of a lull, a bit too long, and that took up a fair majority of the show. And then on Nitro, you did have a bit of a lull there where it was kind of going into, uh, you know, Brad, Brad Armstrong versus Hard Work, Bobby Walker, and uh, Lex Luger versus Max. A bit, of, a bit of a down moment, but I think if I had to give the edge to one show over the other... Hmm. I think I think I'd have to give it to Nitro just because it's such 
a pivotal show. It's not just it's not just the one moment with Scott Hall because that's obviously you know hugely important. But it's also there's there's a lot of good stuff on this show in addition to that with you know Flair and Iron Anderson and with um, the the main event there as we talked about with Stephen Regal versus Alex Wright. There's a lot of good stuff on there. So I would still have to give the very the very narrow edge here to Nitro with certainly the Scott Hall moment being you know a, a good moment to put it over the top. Well, let's let's run through uh, categories here and pick ourselves some winners and see whether or not that is the way it pans out as we as we split it in the in the five part categories. Then, um, all right. F- who do you think then? Let's let's put the wrestling aside till last. Who do you think had the best production value on the night? Well, I mean, the WWF, uh, their production was blown out by a storm. So, I mean, I think you have to go with WCW by default. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, that didn't affect Raw, but um, it, it's actually pretty close. It's pretty close because WCW. There, you know, they had some good recap packages there, which caught me up. Um, and the WWF, you know, for what they were doing, it was just kind of, you know, a very small arena. There wasn't too many, too many little flourishes. So I think by default, maybe I will give the edge to WCW just because their pay per view uh, was not blown out by a storm. <laughs> I actually, I went with a tie on it. I think the WWF ended the sh- like had the ending of the show with the camera work was quite good but WCW's um, format of the show was obviously better with what they did with Scott Hall um, Bischoff talking off off to the side to a, a backstage assistant things like that were good so I couldn't split the two on production value um, you've got gone WCW so oh. that's the first step in their direction yeah, let me also give a quick shout out too on the production value note too, because when they come back from the commercial and they're not automatically like zooming in on Scott Hall in the crowd, you do see if you if you come back from commercial, you do see that they just they're pretty much focusing on the match, but just in the background, you see Scott Hall and you see the crowd kind of turning around. So I think that's actually a note of like pretty good restraint on their part, on their part I should say, to not just like you know as soon as we come back from commercial, let's zoom in on Scott Hall in the crowud because this is some crazy crap that's going on. Uh, they kind of like keep it in the background for a second until he hops the rail and then obviously they you know move over to him which which if it was a shoot they wouldn't be you know zooming in on the guy and showing him on camera presumably but um but i, I like that nice little production flourish where it's that sort of you know we're, we're just going to keep this in the background for now until we can't ignore what's going on so so i will i will stick with wcw on my end getting the production value uh advantage there for that reason Fair enough. Um, now, the next category, I guess, then, we need to talk about who had the, the hotter characters on the show. So who would you give that edge to? Good question. The hotter characters. I mean, it's tough to say because mostly everybody who was on the WWF show tonight was pretty much a mid-carder. Um, even Steve Austin is not quite Stone Cold yet, and he didn't even speak. I guess the biggest name you could say on the WWF show was probably the Ultimate Warrior, who's in kind of his you know brief phase right now where he's not really doing that much. And he, yeah, spoiler, he's not going to be around much longer. I guess in terms of star power, I probably... I might give the edge to Nitro because we have the giant, we have Steven Regal, we have Sting, we have a lot of, well, Scott Hall, obviously, uh, making his debut. I feel like most of those guys are bigger names uh, even now than any of the guys we have on the Raw side um, because, you know, guys like Vader, Owen Hart, they were, you know, we obviously love their work, but they were never quite, you know, main eventers. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I would have to give the edge to WCW for the star power tonight as well. And granted, they had two hours to do it as opposed to one for Raw, but I feel like, yeah, I, I guess I'd go with WCW there too. Okay, that's interesting. I, I actually went the other way, and my reasoning behind it was 
Uh, I can kind of like take aside some of the main eventers for both shows. There was obviously no Undertaker, no Bret Hart, no Shawn Michaels. But in WCW, there was no Hulk Hogan, no Macho Man Randy Savage. Um, so I kind of made that fairly comparable. But the WWF show presented all at least mid to upper mid range guys, whereas WCW had hard work, Bobby Walker. So yeah. <laughs> that was that was my reasoning behind it. So it's you know certainly both points of value, sure. but that that makes it interesting. Um, for the next category being the um, the crowd heat, I clearly went with WCW, and it's a point you already made about the reaction yeah. to Scott Hall and the, the visceral change in the crowd. Do you agree with me on that, or have you gone the other way? Yeah, in terms of the crowd heat, I would say, again, pretty close, because you know the crowd, for, for both shows, to their credit, the crowd seemed very into both shows. Like, as I was saying, when you're watching, and you know, Warrior's getting a really good pop, and <laughs> the, the the, you know, the crowd chants might have been piped in, but they were into Warrior. They were into uh, Ahmed Johnson when he goes crazy and he's beating the shit out of Vader. But on WCW, as I was saying, even the, even the shitty stuff like the American Males, they're clapping along to it. Uh, the Giant gets the huge pop there for slamming Shark. Uh, of course, the fans absolutely love Sting. So it's pretty close. I guess, man, I guess if I had to give the edge to one show over the other... I'll give the edge on this. I will give the edge to the WWF here only because it seemed like the fans are more into everything. And again, much easier to do with a one-hour show compared to a two-hour show. But it seemed like they were up for everything, even that tag match in the middle, which is obviously, you know, two two lower card teams, the Body Donnas and the... Well, no, I guess you can't say lower card because the guns have the belt, but it's not like they're, you know, huge stars. Yeah. But the crowd was pretty much up for everything throughout. So I'll give the advantage to the WWF on the crowd, I think. Okay, and what about storyline advancement? Who do you think did a better job with their storylines on the night? Oh, well, that's that's no contest. <laughs> I'd, I'd have to go W... I'm going WCW on that one, I gotta say, because the storyline that they're kicking into motion tonight is, you know, next level. So 100% I'd go WCW, as much as I did enjoy seeing Goldust resuscitating Ahmed Johnson. <laughs> uh, I think I have to go WCW. Yeah, I think they could have just done that and they would have won by default. So we can't really ask yeah. that one too much. Um, the toughest category of the night is usually match quality. Um, WCW mm. obviously ran a lot more matches. The WWF stuck to just the three. Um, for, for my, I, I think it's a really tough one because I think you'd be hard-pressed to say WCW didn't have the best match, but also you'd probably be hard-pressed to say they didn't have the worst match. So where do you right. land on this one? Who do you think should take the edge of anyone? Again, very close. I think that the top two matches, the the tag match in the WWF and the Owen Hart versus Ahmed, or it's not Owen Hart, excuse me, the uh, Ahmed Johnson versus Vader main event was really good too. Um, yeah, like you said, the WCW, I think you're right. They did have the best match. But I guess I would say if I had to go back and watch just the matches again, I'd probably go with the WWF there because... They, you know, the the main event in WCW was strong, but then you're also having to sit through, you know, Brad Armstrong versus Hardwork, Bobby Walker, Lex Luger versus Max, which was nothing to write home about, Giant versus Shark. I think I would, yeah, even DDP versus Craig Pittman, the Mauler versus Steve Dahl. <laughs> I think I'd still have to give the advantage to to the WWF there because, again, you know, it, it's it's less wrestling content by virtue of them being a one-hour show, but I think the overall, if you were to average out, you know, if you want to do like a star rating or a letter grade rating or something like that, the WWF would probably come out ahead on my side anyway if we were, you know, rating all the matches together. Yeah, fair enough. I um, I really struggled to split them, and I just went with a tie because I thought 
Probably WCW. I really enjoyed the tag match and Scott Steiner and Sting. And I enjoyed the tag match in WWF and I enjoyed Vader and Ahmed, but not as much as the previous two. And then the Warrior and Gold Dust was surprisingly okay, but some of the WCW stuff was pretty awful. So I really struggled <laughs> to split them and went with a tie, which means the overall picture looks like this two, sorry, three victories for the WWF. Two ties and one, two, three, four, five, six victories for WCW out of the category. So definitely Nitro wins in every way conceivable on the night. They win the ratings. They win um, across the board with the with the different categories here. And obviously, by far, the more historical show of the two. So you were right in the end. A very, a very um, clear victory for Nitro. Well, there you go. Well, I, I, I like having the disagreement. It, it Basically, if somebody can enjoy, can watch both these shows and find something great in both of them, then, hey, even even better as far as I'm concerned. Because, uh, like I said, I like both shows. But, you know, if, if one person liked what was going on on Raw more than Nitro, I definitely couldn't fault them for it. And again, for me, I think I put it I put it three to two Nitro. So I put it, I did put it pretty close. But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, as long as that... I'm kind of going around in circles here, but what I'm trying to say is the two shows feeling compelled to put on stronger products is one of the best things about the Monday Night Wars because, you know, once I think when Ross, when uh, Nitro started, Raw was still doing like a lot of jobber matches. They weren't giving away, you know, marquee main events. Um, or, or main events with like, you know, uh, guys who could be considered, you know, upper tier guys. It was kind of like, you know, uh, Shawn Michaels beats a jobber or Vader beats a jobber or something like that. And then in the main event, you might have two like mid-tier guys going head to head. But once Nitro comes out, I feel like Raw then is now doing, they're doing away with the jobber matches where you're not anymore seeing, you know, Ahmed Johnson versus, you know, no name guy. You're actually having to have them face, um, you know, established guys, I should say, as opposed to just the jobbers. So that's one thing where we can sort of thank both shows, I guess, for going head to head because they really they each had to step up their games quite a bit to keep those eyeballs on the show. Absolutely, I think we can all agree on that. This was the the beginning of a beautiful period for wrestling and wrestling fans, and um, the competition was healthy for all and made ev- everybody benefited. More people watched, more people spent money on the product, more people made money from the product as far as the wrestlers go, and we got the the memories we can cherish forever so i still to this day would much rather go and watch any random episode of raw from 96 to 2002 than i would watch this week's raw so that's my personal opinion but i think um this time period gives us the best that we've we've probably ever had and for my lifetime maybe the best as it, it gets yeah yeah and actually on on the note of like my show for example where i'm at right now in march of 1999 right now uh, I think the most recent episode I did, Raw had achieved its highest rating of all time with something like a like a 6.2 or something like that, which is just insane when you think about right now in 96. They're probably around, like you said, 2, 2.5, something like that. Yeah. So these two shows, by virtue of you know feeling the need to kick each other's asses, they, they step it up to such a level that you're not just you know maintaining the wrestling fans you have you're bringing in tons of new wrestling fans because people are like what the hell is this you know what i have to stick around to see this so i mean it's to both shows credit because even even wcw you know like i was saying um with nitro with raw rather doing a 6.1 or 6.2 and nitro is still putting up like a 4.5 which if you add those together you're talking probably like 
10, 11 million people watching wrestling on a Monday night, which is insane to think about now because with the WWF these days, I think they do around like 2 million. So, I mean, it's it's just kind of crazy to think about how much that competition brought out the best on both sides. And really, you know, I, it's cliche, but, you know, we the wrestling fans were kind of the, the real winners of the Monday Night Wars because it really did, you know, it put on such a great product on both shows that they – you know, it, it caused them to step their game up substantially every single every single week. Oh, 100%. This is a bone of contention I have when I listen to um, Bruce Pritchard these days where he says, oh, those numbers oh. weren't accurate. You know, people were flipping and they were being counted on both shows. I'm telling you, as someone who during this time period was in probably the 10th grade here in, in Brisbane and on free dress day at school when you would see Degeneration X, NWO and Stone Cold Steve Austin <laughs> t-shirts everywhere, there were, at least where I lived, at least 10 to 15 times more people watching wrestling than do today. That is absolutely not deniable for me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember the NWO shirt, like people just seeing people around town wearing the NWO shirt. It's like, whoa, there's something, there's something going on here. This isn't just like, you know, my fun little hobby that I would, that I've been watching for the past, you know, six years, however long it's been at that point. Like this is now like people are thinking this is cool so much so that they're wearing the shirt in public, which you would never see, you know, back in the day, uh, those, those shirts, the WWF used to put up where it was like, you know, just a picture of like Shawn Michaels face on a t-shirt or something like that. It's like, no, nobody was wearing those shirts back in the day, but now, you know, because the NWO is so cool and that shirt was so cool. You have people wearing the NWO shirt, the Austin 316 and, and proudly doing so. So it's just kind of funny to see like how far wrestling comes in a very short period of time where it's now like the cool thing for people to actually watch on a Monday night. So it, I kind of felt, you know, that I was uh, in on it before everybody else, but uh, that certainly didn't make me any cooler in high school, I can tell you that much. <laughs> Agree completely. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we've both sort of come to the same conclusion that this was this was the start of the glory period. It's certainly the, the first step towards the greatness that you're reviewing and I'm going to be reviewing in years to come. So, highly enjoyable show. Um, thank you so much for coming and joining me, Henry. I really appreciate it. We had a little snafu with the uh, with the time zone difference and we were out by an hour in our meeting point and met in the middle. So I really appreciate you sticking around and, and waiting for me and doing this today. Of course. And that was totally my fault because uh, I, I was off on the time zones. That was, that was all my doing. So my, my apologies for that. I was off by one hour. Oh, no problem whatsoever for me. Um, it's middle of the day. So it's obviously nighttime for you. So I definitely appreciate you hanging out. Um, do you want to give everybody, I know I'm sure everybody that listens to this show already is well aware of what you do and listens to your show, but do you want to give anyone, just in case there's anyone that hasn't, a, a rundown of what they should be li- listening out for with yourself? Sure, yeah. So it's uh, it's the Raw Attitude Podcast. Basically what we do is we uh, recap episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. That's the whole crux of the show. So right now I'm on March of 1999, as I said before, uh, in the lead up right now to WrestleMania 15. Not one of the better WrestleManias, but we're kind of uh, in that build up phase right now. As I said before, you've been on the show. You did the Survivor Series 98 show and the Raw after, which was, I think, the Raw where Hawk uh, fell off the Titan Tron. So sorry to subject you to that. Um, but that's actually still one of the most played episodes of the Raw Attitude podcast of all time. I still have people listening to that when I like see it in my uh like my weekly thing when i check the um 
the the number of plays every week like that one still comes up so people are loving that episode i have to say so if any of your yeah if any of your listeners haven't listened to that i'll definitely encourage you go listen to that i think it's episode 48 of my show where we do survivor series 98 you and i there's also one i think it's episode 30 something where you you kind of just came on and covered a random episode of raw in the summer of 98 which was also a great time so yeah if, if you're a fan of Raw as Nitro, definitely you know check out uh, the Raw Attitude podcast. If you if you just want to check out the episodes that Lee is on, that's totally fine. But if you want to check out some of the other episodes as well, uh, it's a really fun podcast. I spend a lot of time doing research every week on the brief periods of time. You know, like I'll I'll read from the episode, the, not the episode, excuse me, the issues of the Wrestling Observer for that week, and I'll read you know excerpts from the death of WCW from that week. So it really does give you a time capsule of exactly what was happening at that point in time in 1998 or 1999. So it's, uh, it's, it's good stuff. I think you'll enjoy it. If you like this show, I think you'll definitely like that show as well. And if, if you ever um, listen to this show and think, God, I wish you'd read a book or do some research before watching these shows and reviewing them, Raw Attitude Podcast is definitely the show for you because I can tell you a lot more effort goes into planning and writing and um, getting the info than goes into mine. I literally just watch and react mine's um, a lot more off the cuff. So um, if you if you do want to hear more of the detail and, and stuff like that and some of the best periods of wrestling, I definitely recommend checking it out because as I said at the start of this show... Um, your show, Henry, was the, the real catalyst that led me to believe that you could actually do a podcast on your own and it was worth starting up. And since then, obviously, I've got a whole great bunch of people that come and jump on and do this with me regularly. But um, it, had I not listened to your show, I probably never would have done this. So I, I definitely appreciate it. And to this day, as soon as your show hits, it gets downloaded on my phone and listened to in pretty short order. <laughs> so. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad if I was in any small way an inspiration for your show. That That's an honor on my end, too, because I think your show is fantastic. I'm obviously an avid listener of your show, too, in addition to mine. So, I mean, it's uh, I big thumbs up for me. And I am uh, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing because uh, you know, like you said, even if you're just you know watching the show, recording your thoughts, that's fantastic too. Because hey, you know, I, I quite frankly, my episodes would be pumped out a lot quicker if I just did that instead of like you know taking a billion notes like I do, which quite frankly is a bit of a detriment because it takes up a lot of goddamn time. So. That's frankly, that's what I should be doing with my show is just like, you know, watching and doing the quick things because otherwise, it, you know, it would go a lot quicker and I, my fans, you know, whatever, whatever my fan base is, they'd probably be a lot more pleased with me if I could get those episodes out a little bit quicker. Oh man, when I first started, it was after like my first or second episode and I went, man, I, w- I wanted to do it exactly the same way you do your show and I went, yeah, but I've committed to watching two shows per episode instead of one. This is just not going to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, right. It, it is very time intensive so I, I totally don't blame you at all because with me, I just, have to, I just have to recap, you know, even just recapping a two-hour episode of Raw, I still have to do ep- like a little bit of research on Nitro which can take up a lot of time so it, it's, it's kind of like the, um, the pattern I've formed for myself where now I can't get out of it but by the same token, you know, it's... It's a very meticulously researched show. It takes me far too much time to do these episodes, but I think ultimately, you know, if you listen to it, you'll 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 enjoy it. If you haven't listened to it already, I think you'll like all the the detail that goes into it. So, I I would encourage you to to download the Raw Attitude podcast if you have not already, and you can start with Lee's episodes because those are those are both great episodes. You definitely need to go and listen. Um, Once you've listened to this show, definitely um, get in touch with us both on Twitter and let us know your thoughts on on this moment as well. This is something I'd love to to discuss this period of wrestling. So any thoughts on the show, do get in touch. Obviously, I'm at Rory's Nitro Pod on Twitter. And what's your exact handle again, Henry? 
Uh, yep, I am at Raw Attitude Pod. Okay, I thought so. I wasn't sure if the pod was on the end. So check us both out on Twitter, follow along. And um, once again, thank you, Henry, for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah, and if you want to get back on my show anytime, just uh, just let me know. Oh, definitely. We need to do this again very soon. So whatever, uh, anything you have big coming up that you want a, a guest on, you're in my favorite period of wrestling. I will have watched it, and I will be happy to join. Fantastic. I'll put you down for Over the Edge 99. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's the only pay-per-view I've not watched. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't, don't watch that one. Don't watch that one. No. All right. Well, again, thank you for being on, and thank you, everyone, for listening.